Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. You made it weird. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird. You made it weird. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. What's happening, weirdos? An amazing episode with my friend Mark Flanny Flanagan, who runs the Largo Theater here in Los Angeles. Uh, every show I've ever done at Largo or been to at Largo, uh, usually with Valerie, who's also on this episode, I'm happy to announce, uh, we always end up talking with Flanny for hours. No matter how tired we are, we talk for hours after every show, just laughing and talking about showbiz and and uh, he has such an interesting life, and I was so happy to catch just a couple hours of that interesting life here on the podcast. He doesn't do a lot of podcasts. Um, you know, he's not a performer, but he is a performer. He's a natural performer and very, very funny. So I hope you enjoy this little glimpse into uh, Los Angeles and show business and just an interesting man. Um, and Valerie as well. Valerie is a small part of the episode I'm, I'm in, in the sense that we were both listening to Flanny for most of it. So this is not the uh, Get to Know My Girlfriend episode, but um, we just love him so much we wanted to do it together. So I hope you enjoy that as much as we did. Uh, the uh, Nothing to plug except the sponsor, which you know by now is Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features elegant and beautiful interfaces with templates and incredible 24-7 customer support. So please try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code WEIRD to get 10% off. We all know that building a website can be tough, even if you do know a little bit of coding, but making something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair. Whether it's for business, a portfolio, a restaurant, or whatever, in this day and age, you probably need one. Well, lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. They provide simple, powerful, and beautiful website templates for you to work with. Not only that, but each of those templates is part of Squarespace's responsive design, which means your web sp- <laughs> your web spaces your web spaces scale down to look great on any device further minimizing the hassles of making a website on your own every website you build also comes with a free online store if you need it just need something minimalistic but powerful their cover page fe- feature also allows you to set up a beautiful one page online presence in minutes Seriously, you can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. They give you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website for only 8 bucks a month. You can even get a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for the year. So, what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. And when you do, be sure to use offer code WEIRD to get 10% off and show your support for our podcast. Thank you, Squarespace, for your support of You Made It Weird. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Uh, because I'm in, uh, happily, I was going to say luckily, luckily and happily, I'm here in New York uh, getting ready to shoot this pilot for HBO with Judd, and it's just a true, 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 true dream come true. A true dream come true. Um, there's no tour dates, because so, that's all I'm doing right now. Unless you happen to be in New York, I'll be popping into a couple uh, local shows here and there. Um, but in the meantime, uh, please, <laughs> in the meantime, please keep enjoying this podcast. That's all I got. I got this podcast and I'm working on the show, but, uh, we're not going to miss a week and I can't be more, I couldn't be more excited to give you Flanny and Valerie here for this special episode. So get into it and please enjoy. 
Yeah. You can sit here, Val. Oh, thank you. And Flanny, this is the that's the guest chair over here. We don't normally have a Back to a, a Valerie chair, but that'll be yeah, the, the Valerie right. chair. Hi, Katie. Good to see you. Good to see you, Scout. What's the executive son's name? Are you doing the tech? Yeah. What's your name? Katie. Katie. Kate, nice to meet you. Kate. Katie. Yeah. I thought you said Kate. No. That would have terrified me. Now. This whole time she's she wanted to be called Kate. <laughs> Catherine. No. Pizza I know. Sorry about your arrowhead. My the wee one. <laughs> well, this is a very special episode. Firstly, are we rolling already? We can roll. Oh, Oink. Flandovers, Mark, Flanny, Flanagan, mm-hmm. and a very special guest, Valerie. Yay. Valerie Cheney, my girlfriend. Yes, Friends. the love of our lives. The love of our <laughs> lives. You call her Sweet Val, Sweet. which makes me so happy. Aww. Lady V. Okay. And we didn't think Lady V would be able to be here, and then and then she we we were like, well, tell your boss that we will mention Real Girl the charity. Yes. And we just did. There it is. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people. Yay, realgirlprograms.com. There you go. And should you talk about November 16th? Yes, Nova. Thank you, yes. Flanny. Flanny. <laughs> yeah. Come on, let's you talk about the it. Flan, 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 he's our man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can do it. November 16th, we're having an arm, a female, all-female arm wrestling fundraiser. Only ladies. Only ladies. <laughs> um, to benefit uh, empower the empowerment of girls. So yes. what's better than that? We already have Keegan Michael Key as one Key of our... Key <laughs> As one of the ladies. <laughs> as, one of, as one of the ladies. He's one of the arms. Um, <laughs> he's judging it. Uh, you know, we're having men judge women. That's right. That's what we like. <laughs> yeah. right. um, and there'll be more uh, more comedians we hopefully. We were just talking judging. about that. What was it that you said? Oh, we went to see Swan Lake and I was reading the, this was last night, I was reading the description and it was about a guy rescuing a woman who's become a swan. Right. I didn't know that. Oh. I'm sure most people have seen the <laughs> Nutcracker and seen yeah. Swan Lake. I've never seen any of that stuff. So we went for the first time and I'm reading it and Val, who's very empowered, a very empowered <laughs> V. <laughs> A very empowered Valerie. And she was like, oh, great, another guy saving a woman. And I go, come on, sometimes we save you guys. Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. This yeah. story just happens. It doesn't have to be every time. Yeah, but it is It is every time. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. But also with those things, and opera in particular, don't you think you just, you're better not to know? Opera is like a soap. It is literally a soap opera. The storyline. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're yeah. just best to go. I don't. Just, just it was. Just, it's just right. pop and like a sax solo or something. You go. Okay, I'm going with it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to know what Coltrane had yeah. for breakfast to enjoy the the sax solo. But I had never been, and we ate um, a weed treat. We had a couple weed gummies. Oh, we like did. Peachos. Little peachos, right. and you know, flame. enhancement. Yeah, yes. Swan enhancement. That was the best way. <laughs> well, we were in in the bedroom, and I and I took out this these drugs that we're allowed to have because of anxiety and sleep. Yes. sleep needs. Although we have none of those. We things. have none of those. No, <laughs> that's not why we were doing it. And I'm I'm breaking one of the gummies in half because I'm a lightweight Flandovers. Right. And I, I'm eating it, and I was like, Oh, this is great! I've really been wanting to do drugs. And then I <laughs> and then I said, Do you remember? I go, Isn't it great to we're grown? Yeah, we're just like grown yeah. people that yeah. go like. I kind of feel like eating some weed and seeing a play or whatever. You and then want. ultimately, that's why we don't overindulge because we can. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And we just had them readily available. They're just control. already in Gun our house. control. <laughs> uh, making don't politicize this podcast. Let's not do it. No, but the idea. My people will never be free. In fact, the idea that we had it 
and don't constantly eat it is, you know, evidence that we should be eating it. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, we just had it and didn't even know we had it. That's good drug use. Yeah, but I hear this a lot from comedians, not not as a bit, like backstage, where they say, I've had this one primo you know, weed or whatever, yeah. and it just there's never the right time when I, with when you have kids because you're like, yeah. If she's out of the house and I go for it, I'm irresponsible. Yeah. And then right. if they wake up in the middle of the night, especially young kids, it's just like you feel guilty. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it just goes bad. I think you have to own it. Like it, there's a scene in Sideways, the, the film Sideways, uh-huh. where they're smoking a dube, yeah. and her child comes out and they're just kind of like, hey, <laughs> like they just, I don't know. That's one play. Yeah. <laughs> but you have children. I don't know if you want to be like the weird, you know, stony guy. I've never done a drug in my life. I know. I knew it. By choice. By by. Not thinking about it, and then not by, by choice. Do you have a gun? No guns. <laughs> guns, of course. I have a BB gun, and I'll go after a squirrel. Uh, <laughs> That's the most violent you get. No, no guns, and and also in where I grew up in Belfast, there was there were no guns. It, it, the, oh. ter- the terrorists, as they call them, or yeah. the people protecting their own land, as we call them, um, <laughs> found guns. And would get guns, and actually would make guns. Really? Yeah, they didn't wait for Smith and Wesson. They would make their own guns. Wow. Yeah. So think about that with your situations here—the horrible thing with guns and stuff. People will just yeah. make. It's guns. almost like the heroin thing. Do you make it legal? Right. Anyway, that's politicizing your podcast. No, no, I don't mind politicizing. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write down guns, right. and I'll be so out of my depth. But I want to say why, especially yeah. why you're here, and then why Val is here. I never really do an intro, firstly, because I love you both, but secondly, because we have this, uh, we have a monthly show at Largo, right? and uh, and beyond, even beyond that, I would just always perform at Largo and loved performing at Largo, and then, like, it became this real ritual with Valerie and you and I, that afterwards, we always go out and just chat right. for hours. In the alleyway. In, in the alleyway. With rodents and situations. And, Standing. And with paparazzi that are not interested. Yeah. <laughs> they care about us at all. They just want to know where uh, Judd or Leslie went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're standing there, you know, just, you know, three unique souls to right. our own rights. Right. Mm-hmm. But we'll stand there. And, and then I was like, oh, we have to get Flanny on the podcast. So firstly, thank right. you so much. Oh, I'm so happy, yeah. Secondly... Guns and heroin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't finish the the ballet story. Oh yeah. Well, we ate the we. Okay, that's a good place. Yes, that, that'll be a lighter yes. place. So Val and I are sitting in the second row because we went and saw Shakespeare in the Park in Griffith mm. Park, and it was amazing. Highly yeah. recommend. It's over now, but next summer. Yeah. And we're watching it. And it's amazing. And the, this dance troupe. Do you know the name of the dance troupe? It'd be nice to plug them. Um, in Vertigo. Is that what it is? Yep. Wow, Lady V. Mm-hmm. That was very impressive, mm-hmm. especially for someone that ate a weed gummy. Especially for a woman. And we're live. Yeah. <laughs> that old girl brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so we ate the weed treat, and then we sat in the second row, and I'm sitting there, and, and it was a very kind of like, uh, like, a, like a shroomy high, so I didn't think I was going to have the giggles. It was very visual and just kind of beautiful. And I was like, what if this is amazing? Because there's going to be a lot of people kind of like prancing and spinning. Certainly prancing. You know? <laughs> well, that's, that's what happens. It's even more prancing than you think. Lots of prancing. <laughs> the curtain comes up. And as soon as it starts, no, just immediate giggles. Like oh. I'm was... glad I wasn't there. I would have been oh. really driving that along. I <laughs> <laughs> wish you happened. Yeah. Well, we wished oh. that had we been in some sort of private booth, yeah, it would have been worth ten times what we paid. Totally. Just to be able to laugh, we right. weren't. La- I wasn't. I honestly wasn't laughing. Yeah. Like, look at what you're doing. It's stupid. I was looking at like. 
reality, and it is kind of silly. There's a yeah. lot of like feet flourishing and right. spin moves and stuff. But of course, you don't want to be disrespectful. So anytime we giggled, would get it together within, I'd say, five seconds was a long time. Yeah, yeah. We were three and under. Yeah, but it was a long, relative, thick <laughs> three seconds. Of weeping. Oh. And just shoulders shaking. And then I'd feel Val shaking. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is we were like, so as soon as I would get it together, I would feel his body shaking. Oh. Yeah. We weren't looking at each other. We weren't discussing it. We were just trying to get it together. And I, it was, I wanted, again, it would have been the best night of our lives if I could have just told her what I was, because right. I was, like, translating what they were doing. It's like, hello, we live in a village. All we love to do is dance. <laughs> Sometimes I move my arms like that's, this. That's Sometimes I move my arms like this and then he's like well I like that a lot but there's this nefarious fellow over here and they all had marshmallow butts because they're wearing the tightest tights ever right. well that was my thing is like it's I'm sorry but if you're wearing leotards right. it's I just started thinking of everybody there pretending that they weren't just looking at like bulges and crap right. that's right <laughs> see and that's that's the thing is I'm such a perv in a, in a really really nice way but the first thing that comes out of the curtain I want to see how he's Keeping the package in. Yeah. Well, they all I'm appeared. looking for things going, oh, wow. That, or else, you know, they're really tucking it or whatever. They were Even giving tennis it a players, little house. Tennis players will go up for the thing, and I'm like, that's remarkable. They must be wearing some sort of thing. Because when I play tennis, it's like, it's watch out, jangle. <laughs> One time I, I actually, I went, I, I went to the doctor for college. Remember when you, I, when you, when I had to go to, I don't know, did you have to do this? I go to college and they make you take a physical because mm-hmm. oh, they don't yeah. want you to like drop dead and right. it's their liability or something. Right. So one of the things I had to do was jog in place for just like 90 seconds. Right. And I was wearing shorts and boxers. I don't wear boxers anymore. I like right. a little hug. Yeah. <laughs> little hug. Hug it up. <laughs> you know, not, not a child holding a Teddy Ruxpin, no, no. but just a little, yeah. just yeah. a little in-breath. Enhancement. And I'm running, yeah, enhance, enhance them. And I'm running, and it sounded like someone opened up a lava lamp and was pouring it out. It was just like, like my nuts, my sloppy, sloshy, yes, your nuts, if it's warm enough, so they're descended, balls are gross. But here's the thing is, this is the great thing that I'm not famous, because poor old John Hamm. Oh, poor oh. old John you know, Ham yeah. with that thick old dick. Which I don't even know, but I mean, my wife, because she loves the John Ham, and mm-hmm. so of course we all do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she told me, you know, that poor fella, like he, you know, they're after him about his Mickey sticking out and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, I honestly <laughs> thought that he was seen naked. And then she says, no, 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 no. He's yeah. just, they're just getting the outline of his business, you know, in, yeah. in his pants and they can see it. Yeah. And I thought, Wow, uh, I've been guilty on kids trips in the park with a pair of shorts on that are like they could have been see through. Oh, for sure. When I got home, I went, "Oh, in a certain light." Flandovers. Yeah. I walked the dog today in yeah. a pair of sweatpants that leave nothing to right. the imagination. That's exactly the sweatpants of the yeah. dog business. But he yeah. wasn't wearing sweatpants. John Ham sat right where you were sitting right. and was like, "Of course I always wear. I always wear underwear." Right. But he has to. <laughs> that's, but, good. that's very good. But he has to. You know, that's the thing is we don't have to, but maybe we do. Yeah. We don't have to, but you know what's the? He has a big old hog, though. Right. So he got where's that the Easter, shame? He got that Easter ham. Oh. <laughs> if it looked like a little cremini. Yeah. Eeny weeny cremini. Why is it Easter? You know, on Easter you have a big fuck oh, off ham. Right. He's got an Easter ham, not a small Hanukkah ham. But listen, getting back <laughs> to the great it. moments. <laughs> getting back to the great moments of. Did, did we all go to church as kids? Uh-huh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Unallowed laughter. Is that what you're going to say? No, just just that (laughs) moment of it's supposed at the time it's supposed to be really, really bad. But truthfully, your body's never been as happy when you go into that uncontrolled laughter. That's what it is, yes. And just 
you know. It's joy. And it's yeah. it's some of my earliest memories is being in church and trying not to look at my mom because she would just give me the old, you know, Plenty. sarcastic face and I'd lose it. I yeah. actually think, not to get too deep too quickly, yeah. but that is why life is sweet. Yeah. We want... We think, we don't think it through, but we think we want to live in a utopia where we live forever and there's no conflict. But then you go to a church or a ballet show where you're not supposed to laugh, right. and that's what brings all of the electricity and the juice into it. Right. So in a world, I just did this documentary about death, I was just like a guest on it, and I was like, spending this time together yeah. is precious, right. because we know we don't have infinite time. So Which is why I did this, because I mean, I, I do get asked to do things, yes. you know, and I really, it's not a personal thing with some of the people, it's just I don't really have the time because I love my children and we're homeschooling and all that but because mm. the yes. three of us Flynn. have that chemistry we should share a little of the mess <laughs> <laughs> it's not fair to keep it to it, ourselves but it is <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's also exclusively ours it can never be as candid as it is when it's just the but three so the of funny us, thing right? is now getting back to um, yep. the alleyway and the, and the strange creatures we don't just gossip we do gossip we do dish <laughs> we, we dish. gossip girl my friend Rob Buscemi we, talk, we were talking about we were like we shouldn't talk di- shit so much and he goes right. it's one of our few pleasures yes it and is. it really is it's wonderful it is and we're, we're not malicious it's, you know what it is it's also it's catching up because so many things like in the news every day if you look at there's, there's things but in our lives things happen and we're not around each other to go oh, what's this all about yeah. but then when we do get together we're like what was that all about yeah, 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 yeah. and is it still going on and especially if you live in a world where, like, we're all in comedy. You know, right. Uh, I know, Valerie, you don't work in comedy, but you're certainly involved in my life a lot. Mm-hmm. And we're all there, so we know all the casts of characters. Right. And then, like, there's nothing more exciting than when we're standing out behind Largo after a show or something, and I realize I have something good to tell you. Yes. Like, I'm like, it's did you good. hear yeah. Brian Posehn stabbed a stewardess because <laughs> she wouldn't give him a second tomato juice for free? And then we just start laughing right. and laughing and right. doing Posehn impressions. It's wonderful. But also, we come to some of the things that we've heard from different sources, and then it's usually pretty spot on. Like, you heard mm-hmm. from such and such about, do you hear about Tig's thing and that? that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting to kind of formulate an opinion based on the three of us kind of like, well, we're, we're fair people. Right. right. And know? we're hearing it. We're everybody. a good jury. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we really are. That's we right. will we're hear it. Yeah. We're loyal to the people. It's not yeah. like malicious gossip. It's like, I, I feel bad for my friend that they're going through right. this. But right. But we're also getting that, we're feeding that gossip. Which is probably you a do bunch get of, to tickle that gossip nerve. Which is probably yeah. a bunch of housewives or, or farmer men like doing their thing. Every day they get to do that. We just yeah. don't get to do it. That's right, right. So and it it's makes a shame. it better. But Largo has that built in. Why don't we talk a little bit about Largo? Well, you know, I was thinking about Lady V and I mm-hmm. have that unique um, experience of being in the family, but slightly uh, not on the stage, which is yeah. great. And oh, I because always, your comedy, your comedy, uh, we need a wonderful name. I was going to say like royalty, lovers. but comedy but lovers. It's more than lovers. It's like right. you're, and it's more than proprietors. Enablers. It's certainly enablers. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but it is the strain where we're kind of like comedy mums in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of people come to me and tell me, you know, sure. certain things. But from the 20 years that I've been doing Largo, I've seen many incarnations on many different, like it started with, you know, Cross and that alternative like Janine Garofalo, Laura Keitlinger, all those people that started them. But I still have everyone in the same class that has never graduated. Mm. Like, so right up to, like, Harris, you, Bo, you know, some of the, you know, everybody. And so it's kind of like that one thing. I feel like they're all in the same college. Mm-hmm. And some of them are going to go to grad school. Mm. But 
pretty much they're all going to stay in the same school. Nobody's ever kinda, really graduated. Okay, so like when I think about like the managers and the agents, I'm like, oh, that's kind of fun. They're in show business, but they're removed. But they're right. not. They're not as much as you are, in the yeah. sense that like I've been in green rooms. I don't think you'd mind me saying with Bill Burr, where he's been like. You guys got to get the fuck out of here. You know right. what I mean? Right, right. You don't click Flanny. You don't click Flanny Cloud. Because I know when to leave. You certainly know. Well, you Flanny, know I mean? the yeah. art of Flanny. I would buy the book. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> as Steve Agee would say, you're a real ham and egger, except you're, you're an Irishman. So I right. should say you're like a real, yeah. I don't know. Meat and potatoes. Potato. A real, meat a meat, you're yeah. a, me, a real meat and potatoes guy. But like that calming thing, Sarah uh, loves you. And right. Elliot Smith loves loved right. you. You know what right. I mean? Like what a... It takes that sort of. It's almost like a, like a farmer. But you're you, like a farmer, and we're like the crazy crowd. It is. But you know, I do. Ca- I do catch myself a lot because I'm really. I don't suffer from um, any depressions or anything like. Luckily, uh, but yeah. but I do catch myself because otherwise you'd be quite psychotic. But like, definitely always reevaluating our environment, like backstage, and going. Is that person kind of like, so in the next room, because we've got two rooms and there's a few other situations, I will feel if somebody's kind of like, okay, we're getting close to the show, that person needs their space. Yeah. So, you know. mm. But also, I feel that even subjects that are brought up before, so afterwards, it's anything. We yep. can talk about anything. But beforehand, you don't want to bring up certain things with certain comedians. That's really interesting. And so I, I can kind of like channel things to either if it's getting there going, all right, well, anyway, so yeah. and move it on. Um, but that needs to be art. well heard because yes. like before a show, I, I don't consider myself a superstitious person, but I sure don't want to talk about comedy theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about bombs. Right. I don't want to talk right. about That's it. who's in the audience. Yes. Like you could really freak me out the nights right. that you've been like, that you didn't, right. but you could have been like Cameron Diaz is in, in the audience and you right. didn't. And I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, not right before. And then after I go on, you know, you're like, hey, yeah, 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 that's pretty fun. Well, you know, and that's funny too, because there's, I still don't feel bad about this because Bo cleared it up, but Bo Burnham did a show and his manager made arrangements with our manager to have Justin Bieber and his girlfriend, Selena Gomez come. Oh, wow. Do you know this story? No. And so um, <laughs> it's pretty great. And so before the show, there was this big rattle about like, oh, he's going to come and, you know, will there be accommodations? And we're like, yeah, he'll buy a ticket and he'll just come in. And so him and Selena and somebody's mom, it's either his mom, I think it was his mom came and they were dressed like they were going to the Oscars. She had a long gown on and they went through. And so I came out of the office, saw this <laughs> and security guys, the whole thing. And they went past me and I was like, well, fair enough. He's here. And then I went backstage and I knew better than asking Bo, oh, <laughs> look at your guest list. Yeah. I didn't say anything. And waited for him to say something. He never said anything. So I came back out and then I went to the the gate and I, the, the door and I said to Michael, what's the deal with these? He goes, it's been all day. Like, they've called me to say, you know, they're going to park at such and such a spot. And I kept saying, I think you're overreacting because Largo doesn't care, really. Like, he <laughs> he can come in, he can go out. And uh, and so anyway, what happened Largo was... Largo doesn't care. Well, you know... We, it's a great bumper But singer. you know what the funny thing is? Barbara Streisand just bought tickets and came in as a normal person and really nobody, everyone was yeah. like wow that's really look at that yeah. nobody bothered her yeah. and there's a big old bunch of gays there and they were really impressed but nobody yeah, went yeah, oh yeah, yeah. you know yeah. no selfies nothing so that's what kind of happens and so group of gays bunch a big, bunch, a big old bunch yeah, yeah. of gays prancing they were prancing <laughs> they were yeah. that's how you lovable know. prancers <laughs> well you know Streisand fans yeah, but, so, but so with comedy. Bo then Bo has this bit that it never occurred to me where he talks to the younger women, and he's got a lot of younger women in his audience, about being manipulated by Usher lyrics. Like, where it's like, you have to be self-empowerment, and really he's just manipulating it. That's what Bo's perspective is. Mm -hmm. So on this particular night, he decided to not use Usher as the reference and use 
Justin Bieber. Get a and, sandwich in my and face. And I thought, okay, so Bieber's got a really good sense of humour. They worked this out. He's sitting in the audience with his mummy and his girlfriend. Oh. And they're all dressed up. And Bo does ten minutes that usually would be two minutes on Bieber and the manipulation. And if this is your hero and, you know... And like so, because Bo is a heady, smart, so very smart, pro so, woman guy, but also so lovely. Yeah, I was like, he does not know he's here. There's no way that Bo would. do He's this. not a meanie. Oh. No, because it did. It get. It got kind of mean, and then the audience, knowing that Biebs was in the audience, were like, oh, and then started laughing, thinking Bo obviously knows about this. So anyway, I went backstage afterwards and. <laughs> Oh my god. They exited the building as fast as you could possibly get. Michael the manager said, hey, Do you want to go back and see Bo? And Michael was working and didn't see the set, didn't know anything, and just said, Do you want to see Bo? And, and Beebs was like, I know we you know we have another commitment and they got out of there. Oh. So I went back and I said to Bo, Did you know Bieber was here? And Bo almost passed up. Like, what are you talking you're and he and he knew by my tone that it wasn't kidding. I said he was here with his girlfriend and his mummy. Oh my god. And his mummy. Yeah. His Mummy! His mummy was here! So he felt so bad that he actually used his appearance on Conan a few weeks later, Bo Burnham, to apologize to Bieber, oh. saying that I had no idea, I used this thing, I'm not taking back what I, you know, but it was so nice. Oh, so, my so it goes God. to that thing of like. Well, you know, th- okay, so this just goes back to the to the farmer, f- comedy farmer. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you need to find a way to kind of like caress the, the corn and right. get it grown and feeling right. okay. And there are times when you have told me like, for example, doing the HBO pilot, you'll be like, just so you know, someone from HBO is here. And sometimes that really helps. Right. Because right. if I go out and I'm just like, you know, I don't have anything that HBO wouldn't like. But what if I did? Right. right. And then I did it that night. Right. It, it was, I can't believe that. Wow. And there's things that are like, I mean, you know. There's been comedy nights where there's where I've seen people come in on a wheelchair or like a very advanced wheelchair, you know, the, the, and, yeah. or I've seen whatever it happens to be. And I'm not going to say to comedians, hey, by the way, don't make fun of people in wheelchairs. And, and honestly, although it happens. Yeah. yeah. And the people in the wheelchairs just feel included, you know, no matter what it is. They're just like, oh, hmm. you know, but they don't think that the person saw them because it's such a dark pit that nobody that on can, stage can see anything. I've been on stage speaking of being able to see anything. This is uh-huh. terrible. This is a fan of the podcast. So there's a good chance he's listening. So this is not this person is not the butt of the story. I'm on stage. I'm in uh, fucking Phoenix or some shit. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's it's a big club. It was great, but it was a big club, meaning that it was often filled. I can't fill it, right. which means it's going to just be papered, which means it's just going to be kind of random comedy people. Right. So I'm not doing as well as I'd like to be doing. That's key to this story. And uh, so I start kind of fishing in the crowd to try and do some crowd work. And there's this one guy. He's a little bit pale, so he, and he's got uh, sunglasses on. And that's a real... That's real low-hanging fruit for the crowd work. It's like, because usually that's a cool guy, and you go, oh, look at the cool guy. He's got his sunglasses on. The man didn't say, I'm blind. He didn't even see. It's like, it was like a setup. He uh, took out his cane and, like, (laughs) clack, 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 clack. Like, he was a prop audience comedian and extended the full cane. I would like to tell you that I had somewhere to go. I was just like, I'm so sorry. Yep. And then resumed. Like I just oh had to move God. the fuck on. It was terrible. Oh. That makes me think of the Key and Peele sketch where... Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's Jordan's in the audience. Yeah. No, you tell it. You know him so much I, better than me. I don't know if I know this one, but yeah. So uh, Keegan is is the stand up, and he's like doing crowd work and going in like a line, <laughs> and then he realizes the next person in the line is Jordan, and he's like in a wheelchair. Right. He has like scars on his face, and he has a robot voice. Right? Doesn't he just have a hole for a face? Oh, he does. Yeah, that's what it is. You're right. It's, it's like he worse. doesn't even have a face. <laughs> it's just a hole. And he was like, oh, uh, nothing for you. And he's like, you don't want to talk about <laughs> he said, the fact he said, that I have a hole for a face? How about my robot voice? Yeah. Is there something there? And he's like making it. And he's like, no, it's fine. And he like makes him. And then, yeah, it's so funny. We died at that one. I love that one. The other thing that I get to see, which is, and you, you're a recipient of it, but I actually will be with some talented people afterwards and the audience want to meet, the fans want to meet the performer. Sure. So Colin Hay has uh, is a singer for Men at Work and he's played Largo since the beginning and he's fantastic. He's a great guitar player, a great singer and very funny. And he also has a lazy eye. Is that right? Right. And so in some of the Men at Work videos like Down Under or Who Can It Be Not, you know, you'll see the, they made these classic MTV videos and he has definitely got the dodgy eye going on, you know. <clears throat> and, um, and so a lady came up to him afterwards. She said to me, I would really love to meet Colin. I've flown the whole way from Spokane, Washington, and I'm such a fan. And mm. I said, oh, okay. Well, he'll come out maybe and sign some stuff after. So I was standing with Colin, and I said, this, this sweet lady here, she came from Spokane, Washington, just to see you, Colin. And Colin says, oh, thanks very much. And he's Scottish. And he goes, uh, it's so nice of you to come the whole way. Did you come the whole way just for the show? And she goes, I did, and I have a question for you. And I went, oh, no. Oh, boy. And she goes, I had no idea you had a glass eye. And he says, oh, well, I don't have a glass eye. And she goes, what's it made of? <laughs> Just not even listening. Just kind of in a whiteout at yeah. that oh, point. Yeah, yeah, I've decided. What's it made talk. of? And, and Colin, who has got a great sense of humor, just kind of did almost like you did to that person in Phoenix was just like, all right, well, like, you know, Andrew, we're going to move on because I could attack you desperately right now. Uh, but I just stood there going, I thought he was going to go, wood. <laughs> there, yeah, exactly. It's like I had one of those balls from Minority Report. But he has a great joke because there's a great... Um, uh, engineer producer called Steve Lillywhite who did a lot of YouTube Peter he did Gabriel, the Dave Matthews yeah, the Lillywhite Lily White and he's a lovely I, guy that's also, that album I can't stop yeah. listening to but it's not I, I'm in a weird Dave Matthews research. Yeah. he's going through a Dave Matthews phase well yeah. I'm writing the pilot that's about 2007 right. Right. so I'm re-listening to stuff I liked back then and I really like that album Yeah, right. but it's not as good as the Lillywhite sessions what were you oh the, I thought you were saying the Lillywhite sessions was the album you like, can't get it you, it's so my brother got a copy and I remember it being when it like came yeah. out and it was just a blank CD with it written in a sharpie. Yeah, the Lily White sessions, and it was like gold. You to can find. listen to it on uh, YouTube. But well, anyway, Lily, Lily White right. also has a dodgy eye, mm. right? Lazy eye, not a wooden one, a lazy one <laughs> that tends to prance. So, oh, when so much. Colin and Steve were hanging backstage at one of Colin's shows at Largo, and I said, "He's such a nice guy." And Colin's like, "This is after Steve left," and he goes, "Yeah." We've never seen eye to eye. Uh, and so they can make fun of it, but don't dare. That's you know. really that is funny. That's so great. Oh tell, the, tell the, we're just going to put quarters in the, in the Flanny this jukebox. Is, this is the magic of Flanny. This is the magic. Elliot Smith. Our, no. <laughs> <laughs> Our joke. Sometimes we'll invoke the spirit of Flanny just for fun. Right. Because mm-hmm. you can't. Like, for example, we are. We're doing my show at Largo. <laughs> Zach Galifianakis is on stage. Yeah. And I am, uh, I had a particularly high energy and wild set. I went up up top. It was one of those nights where I did my time up top. Right. And then Zach goes up. And this has nothing to do with Zach not following me. He just went up and was kind of like 
against the grain to begin with. Right. He was like, what the fuck? Like, saying this on stage. Right. Like, what the fuck is this? I, I can't follow this right. mess. Right. Like, basically meaning that. <laughs> and he kicks his shoe. Right. Remember? Yep. And his boot flies off and spins through the air and lands in the audience. Yeah. Someone catches it. The guy caught it in one, ca- one catch. Like one, it, caught it in like one hand, Like right? one hand. So yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we're laughing and then, do you remember? Yes. You turn to Flanny and he goes... You have to do it because you can oh. do the he goes, voice. I bought sack those shoes. I bought sack there's no story and it's so funny. you yeah. can't tell Flanny yeah. that yeah. he's not like Involved I was there that it. night yeah. 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 yeah yeah absolutely and another another one is when <laughs> so we watched we watched Tig's documentary and Flanny of course is in that and we we expect that that makes sense right so then like a couple days later we watched the Elliot Smith documentary and, and right before we turn it on Pete goes yeah. you know I was in that documentary <laughs> yeah as a joke right. as a joke right. and then you were you were yeah but they're the only two that I've ever been in. No, you're in the Colin Hay one that my friend Nate Gotham is doing. Really? Boom. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if you it was included. You just emailed me. Yeah, you, no, you didn't. They're doing a screening it. of it, I, I find. I know. Um, that's We're leaving town that week, but oh. there's a nice little plug for Colin's yeah. movie. Do you oh, know good. what it's called? I think it's called Waiting for My Real Life is the uh, working title, which is a great song. Um, but, um, but the Elliot thing was, I haven't seen the whole thing. so Right, we saw it. We and I just joked, sorry, I just joked about uh, who killed Elliot Smith. That was one of the topics that we talked about. And the funny thing is, it's been so long since Elliot's been around now at this point that it is, people will come up to me not knowing that I have any relationship with Elliot at all and say the bizarrest things like, who do you think killed Elliot Smith? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, out of nowhere. And his sister, who's a very good friend and a great girl, Ashley, and I talk about this. So it was very much a thing of... I was great friends with Elliot, and I have that thing about me which is a little bit dangerous but with certain artists where I will tell the truth when it, when it needs to be. And Elliot and I had a sit-down, and we, we had an intervention, and he never spoke to me after that. So it was kind of a rough ending, but no. it's fine because I feel like he was on a horrible path at that point, and at least if I tried. We were ju- I was just talking yeah. with somebody about this, about the, the kind of... I just called myself a hurricane, or I, t- I call my friends hurricanes and stuff, but there's another type of hurricane, like this right. sort of volatile person. Right. So it's like you have a mayonnaise, a mason jar with a hurricane in right. it, and that thing goes around. And uh, we were talking about, you know, Geraldo and, and Elliot and right. all the and Mitch, Mitch, Mitch Hedberg, Hedberg. Yeah. and it's like, what do you do? And the crazy thing is, a lot of people go, even if I could do it again, right. I don't know what I could have said. Right. Like mm-hmm. you get the feel, and this isn't to give us a pass. Right, of course. But it's, I, what you're saying makes perfect sense if you're like, I had an intervention. Right. It looked like things were heading bad. Mm-hmm. But like what, I don't think, what I never realized is that some of these people that struggle with addictions is it's like, they're aware of, right. the, of the deal. Nobody is like surprised and they've probably thought about what they might say right. or to reply or, or to like cast blame on you or whatever. So it's like right. a very complicated thing. So what happened with... with well, well, so just because the, it's the subject of this podcast, but the, when I heard, I said to you, I, don't, I'm not, I really don't have time to listen to podcasts. Yeah. Right? And then I was in Hawaii, which would have been two, almost two years, no, a year and a half ago. And you said, you should listen to the Harris one. It'll really, it'll surprise you. And I went, okay. So I listened to the Harris one and it was shocking, but I had just seen Harris and he was telling me that he'd had a really rough time and he was doing good. And, uh, I listened to the first one and then the second one. And the second one was like, what the downtown and all this sort of stuff. It brought all the Elliot Smith stuff back. Mm. Elliot was stabbed. I had to take him to hospital. We had to give false names. That's oh. not in the documentary. But the thing I wanted to do with the documentary and the intent of this, um, what's it called again? It's uh, called 
any given Sunday. Mm. No. No. <laughs> no. It's called... Oh. Um, uh, heaven Adores Heaven Adores You. Adores you. So Kev- <laughs> I so knew Kevin, it wasn't called that. <laughs> any given Sunday. I knew it was three words. Yeah. Uh, um, but, but the thing about the documentary, they wanted to do something different. And so the family endorsed this. And that's a complicated shadow itself. But I wanted to say things like, Elliot Smith would sit with a guitar and play a song which was bottle up and explode for the first time ever mm. and just look for my reaction knowing that it's great. Well, that's what you told right. me. Yeah. We were talking about these kind of quiet, like even if they're not wearing hooded sweatshirts, right. they feel like they're wearing hooded yeah. sweatshirt guys that have... See, we, I talked about this with old Hansard. Right. The way that you have to have two simultaneous things, intense confidence and, and almost this like manifestation of destiny right. mixed with a, a, like a Ben and Jerry's swirl of I'm not shit. Right. Both. Well, and then that was the thing that Elliot came up with, with um, that whole kind of alternative stuff where he didn't want to sign to a major deal. He didn't want to do all this. But he really clearly knew that he wanted to make beautiful music. Right. Mm -hmm. And he had made kind of gritty music and was like, now I know. And he was at that thing and he met John Bryan. But his producers, Rob and Tom, really got him on this track of like making great records and stuff. So Mm -hmm. and so did he he did with before that, too. But my thing that I wanted to get across was that he was really funny. Mm. and could sit with us here and get every reference and add some mm. and wasn't even economical. He would go on and we went to a, a <laughs> Lakers game, him and I, and we had so much fun. He was so freaked out about meeting Jerry Springer. We were in this backstage area thing. And that was Jerry like, Springer, Jerry Springer, was just Jerry hanging Springer? out, just hanging out. And not, there's like, not a basketball man named Jerry no, Springer? No, this is oh. Jerry Springer, the TV man. <laughs> and, um, and, and I couldn't believe that Elliot he was so impressed. He, no, he, we were standing beside him and there was a lady walking around with a tray of glasses and she was like, would you like a champagne? And Elliot was like, oh, I think I would. Like, which is his uh, sense of humor, which is really funny. And I don't drink, but I took one anyway. <laughs> and I said, right beside you, three o'clock. And he turns around and there was Jerry Springer and he goes, oh, my God my family would freak out if they knew that I got to stand next to. Not even me, stand next to. So there were many facets of this man that everybody yeah. thinks he was Mopey Dick and, you know, Mopey walking Dick. around. Yeah, and, and he wasn't. But that story you told me about him playing a song, because I, you've seen that flash in me, and certainly Val has too, poor thing. But that thing where I'm like, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get really excited because you riff a bit on stage so you kind of see that it works and then you get right. off stage and you're like, that was something and we all kind of have a fun moment. But then here's, like you said, people think he's Mopey Dick and he's like, he plays it and he's like, I know, right? Yeah. Like, but certainly, but so after I, uh, John Brown and I and a few other people were involved in this intervention, from that point, it seems, from what I know from all his friends, till towards the end, he was in a pretty fugue state of, a bad fugue state of just like not, you know, the not drugs, fully there. Things escalated. He mm. wiped a lot of friends out. His manager, Margaret, who was the best. Mm. So we all got kind of exiled and stuff, which is fine. Um, but I also thought with him that I'd read enough about David Bowie and Keith Richards and all these people that had went through like horrible drug addictions yeah. and then came through it. And I just always thought that for some reason it was very naive to think, oh, he'll, he'll, he'll pull the he'll nose pull up. through. And he almost did. So because I mean, according to the autopsy, he didn't have these illegal like he was doing really bad things when I was with, with him. But but with Harris, it was... I don't know why I was so shocked. Having yeah. heard your podcast, it was just like, yeah, he went back and... I just... Yeah. It, it, it was such a shock. It's it still a shock. a shock. Yeah. No, I think about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. I was just book, like booking a show, and I was like, oh, maybe... Oh, fuck. Like, I'm not trying to be funny. Right. No. Like, it's still... No, I know. Like and then I just way. saw... We're putting a clip together for um, something for many, many years of, of Largo... Um, and it's uh, for Jack Black's Festival Supreme thing, and we're just putting this like ten. Fligoo, fligoo, fligoo. 
<laughs> we were doing that in the car. Yeah, we were. We saw a guy that looked like Jack Black. Where? In a movie? Yeah. And I went, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. But we, so we find this um, clip of uh, Harris introducing Louis at Largo, and he's saying, you know, it, the, of course we didn't get his set. Oh, boy. Mm. And we didn't get all of Louis' set either, but he was just describing that, and he was, he was going on. And I remember him having a really good set that night, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, then we looked at the date, and it was 2009. And it really felt like it was two years ago. Mm. So anyway. Yeah. Well, that was actually, a, 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 for what it's worth, there was a sweet moment at Largo uh-huh. where Harris turned me on to Frightened Rabbit and Scott right. Hutchison right. did this podcast and all that stuff. And then we had him as the musical guest uh, shortly after Harris had passed, and he, he, I, I think either I in the intro or Scott in his intro, some, we mentioned that Harris was a big fan, and right. it felt kind of sweet. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. It's obviously mostly sad, but it is, and and then that also that he didn't, uh, you know, he was so it's young that sad. he didn't like. Yeah, as it is entirely sad, but I didn't know. All these people that so afterwards, his mother came to me and said, and this is when I feel like I've been around for a long time. But we did a night a tribute to him, and uh, it was lovely, and Sarah and a whole bunch of people. And it's our night seemed to me more from the perspective. Maybe it was because of Sarah, but Harris's time on Sarah's program and all the people from that thing. Because the night before there was Amy Poehler and all the Parks and Rec thing did yeah. somewhere. I, I think it was at UCB, but anyway, his mom flew out and the sister flew. Out, his sister, they're lovely people, and his mom in the dressing room. Right before the show, she says, I just want to let you know that um, when Harris was in L.A., he called me, like, crying because you introduced him to Sarah Silverman and she gave him a job on his show. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh. And then he would call to say that you offered him another set. And it just meant so much to him. And I was like, how could that mean something? You know, like, there's many places for people to perform in L.A. But I guess he would do what I used to do with my mom when she was alive, but I'd call back and go, guess what, you know? Yeah. Not boasting, yeah. but, like, things are kind of, you know, it's yeah. heading this way or heading that way. Right. And then you just realize, wow, it really was, um, you know. And then also the fact that he, that he knew Frightened... You know, we all turn each other on to certain things, but mm-hmm. Glenn Hansard would play at Largo, I think it would have been, like, 97, 98. I think he met Elliot, I introduced them and stuff, and he wouldn't have really known at that point, you know, how great Elliot was and stuff, but... But Glenn, I would beg people to come to the old Largo, which held like 125 people, mm. and 50 people would show up. Mm-hmm. And then, as this is, do you see the frames, r- to see or just him to see solo, him? and they couldn't afford because they couldn't afford the frames. The frames that's oh, right. Yeah. Did he tell you this? You told me that, right? Yeah. I mean, they couldn't afford to fly over and have visas and everything else, and so right. he would come over and do these little gigs. And um, the frames did play at the Mint, and it was just not a lot of people showed up, so they were like, okay, we can't afford this. So Glenn would come over. And it was right before the movie hit, once. Mm. And after the movie hit, it was pandemonium. And it's always been pandemonium. Yeah. He's come back and done little things, but it's like, even now, it's, it's he's He said big. that on the podcast. He was yeah. like, because I was trying to get him to open up about like the struggle. And he was like, I just loved his heart mm-hmm. so much. He was mm-hmm. like... No, you know, I can't do his accent. I can I can't do yours either. Right. <laughs> but uh, well, he's a very specific Dublin, yeah. Yeah. Toinks. Yeah. Toinks. 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 Great. Toinks. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Great, yeah. Cool. All right, yeah. <laughs> that was very good. That was very good. But he just had that thing where he wouldn't drag his own life through the gutter cuz I was trying to be like Oh, now right. everyone's dying to see you. And he'd be like, no, uh, 10 people would see us next time we were in town. Yeah. 20 people would be there. And next time, maybe 25. And right. it was always more. And he, so it, it was just that true troubadour. But and I wonder if you knock on the door a little bit with, I'm, you'd probably pride, but with, with him, if I said specifically, do you remember I was so embarrassed that 47 people came to see you and you were yeah. like, 
I know, Jesus, what are we going to do? <laughs> what, what are we going to do? But the funny thing is, Jesus. Jack, Jesus. Jack, Black, Jesus. Jack Black had done um, Tim Blingles. Robbins. <laughs> every time, every time. He had done Tim Robbins' movie, him and Kyle had done that um, Bob Roberts movie, and I. this is after I met him. And he thought it was going to be crazy. It wasn't until Tenacious D, after playing at Largo for a while, did um, like a little appearance on what do you call it, Mr. Show on yeah. TV. That the like people were well, literally jumping us. them. I yeah. told you this, right? No, but tell, tell the folks. Tell well, us so talk they about would, Tenacious they would, D. They would jump up on our Monday night comedy show, and everybody would be amazed. Like we were all like, "God, Jack's energy and Kyle so subtle and everything." You know, and they would do Explosivo and greatest <laughs> song, great, you know, uh, yeah. and they would do all these songs. Or, or I can't take it. Flanny's favorite. Flanny's favorite in the third person <laughs> is uh, "Daddy's Been Taken uh, by Shells." I, is that the one we talked about? That's my favorite. I, I think we did talk about like an obscure Jack, one. It's it very, very emotional, and uh, "Daddy's Been Taken by Shells" and "I'm Just a Baby" is how it ends. And it's just oh so ridiculous. God. But I would look at the audience and half of them, mostly the girls, would be just like crying. Creaming? Because he's such a performer. And the rest oh. of us are giggling so hard. But they would Wait, is not it a draw. sad song? It's a ridiculously <laughs> melancholic song. And then at the end of it, Daddy's been taken by shells and I'm just a baby. So this, the, the lines... What check, are shells? Google it. Like seashells? Yeah. Just Google it. <laughs> Just All right, Google go it. on YouTube's. I'll also, YouTube's it. Um, on Pick of Destiny, he ends one of the songs with "I'm Just a Baby," yeah. and then he does like the most realistic yeah. newborn baby cry sound. Uh, yes, and, and that's what this. <laughs> that's what it was. So yeah, so the premise of the song is pretty much like life is rough. And, I think I'm not, you know, but the end of it is that, and that's the punchline. Oh. And it's so ridiculous that I would literally go into the kitchen every single time and laugh because my laugh is so ridiculous and loud <laughs> that people would know. And um. And then one night Jack said to me, I think we've lost you on that song, huh? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I didn't hear you laugh. And I went, I was, I went I past the, the kitchen, kitchen into the alleyway. Yeah. I was laughing so hard because people didn't know whether to take them seriously or what was going on. And then as soon as it was this 10 minute slot on uh, Mr. Show. That's what, that's what did it. But not the HBO show. I think he said, wasn't the HBO show or I, it was after that? It was the HBO show. Yeah, is that Mr. Show? What was that? What no. were they on? Well, they, I think they did like the sketches. They did little snippets and then they did their own HBO and, show. Yeah. Which and the HBO free. show is after they were successful, yeah. I guess. Okay, so you, it's just interesting that they were doing it for so long. And it was literally overnight. And then High Fidelity came out and then it was just Jack's Journey. Like yeah. it's crit. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But by the way, never changing greatness, that man. Like, these big names like Will Ferrell, Jack, Zach Galifianakis have matured but have not become anything but, especially for me, but I see them interacting with other people. Right. Yeah. The nicest people. Oh, that's Sarah so Silverman, sweet. to me, yep, I the agree. greatest has Sarah's never faltered. Sarah's always been a peach. Yeah, never we, faltered. We texted mm-hmm. Sarah the other day, what's your uh, Showtime Go password? Yeah. yeah. Who is the? Yeah. Who is this she gets superstar right yeah. that writes back? And it's not It's not me. I mean, she's sweet yeah. to Valerie. No, 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 absolutely. You'd think it would be like a comedian camaraderie or something. But, you know, you have relationships all these years later. It'd be interesting. I think that my, if Elliot was around and had gone through all that stuff, and we would still have the same relationship we had in 97, yeah. which is just, you know, let's yeah. do this. This is silly, you know. Yeah. Um, so interesting. But the clearing of rumors is a good... The, the point, yeah. without even getting to the... I don't think there are many more specifics, but the point is, like, it's so refreshing when you get some sort of piece of vitriol right. to see the the human, like, no, I know... Like, those names you just saw. I, I know yeah. uh, Will Ferrell, and he's a sweetheart. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that I'm... I think if I was famous and something was radically untrue, 
it would you rattle would, me big. Yeah. yeah. I would Sean Penn it big time every right. time. Right, 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 right. You know, especially pertaining to your kids or your family or your, you know. Right. Because we've both been married before, so it's like that struggle of nobody knows that well, this is where the that Flan- journey, and this is where the sweet, sweet core of Flanny comes in, and that's and that's one of those essential people, right? Because mm-hmm. anybody, yeah. anybody can find the the gross parts, but it's, right. not, it's nice to have somebody. But but then when somebody is being like somebody that we know <laughs> is being a dick and it's constant, and then just well, comes back to we do love that it. too. We yeah. do, but it's, it's actually it's a kind of a bummer because yeah. the last time last week when we were talking out in the alleyway, we were talking about a bunch of things, and we talked about this uh, world famous comedian. <laughs> and it's just, it's kind of sad that it's like, it's still, a bu- it's still he's, he is being a bummer. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And, and it's like, it's not, I, I never had this faith of that person of knowing that, he, you know, but I did have a relationship back around the time of Elliot, by the way, you know, like of... of Long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard all these rumors and I would always, same thing, like, well, I wasn't there and you weren't there. And, you know, and I actually did the same thing with Cosby. It's like, I really do believe in innocent until proven guilty. And then that became such a, like, yeah. really... Right. I mean, how does his wife even sit there and go, did you have 50 relationships? Right. Yeah. I mean, never mind the, you know. So so I always kind of, like, we're not there. We're there but then when it becomes so myopic that it's people that are right next to us being affected mm. by these people that you just go, what a fucking bummer. Right. right. And after a certain point when it's undeniable, you deserve to be gossiped about in right. an alleyway. Yeah, <laughs> like right. That, I don't feel guilty yeah. after you've done certain things. It's just us things. writing you a ticket. Yeah. yeah, we just wrote you a ticket. Exactly. But you know, I'm 50 now. <laughs> I, I I made a choice when I was, I think maybe 35, having got done Largo for five years at this point. I was just like on a New Year's Eve, sitting on a volcano in Hawaii. <laughs> I was single, and I was just like, my next year, I am not going to work with anyone that I don't like. Mm. And honestly, since then, every show at Largo are people that I really like and really think are talented. And I nonstop get calls from people like her who are very famous, who I know, having met firsthand, are not pleasant, and I won't book them. Right. Mm. And my life is so much easier. It's just so great to look forward to Wednesday night, like, okay, Melanie can't make it. We're going to make this work. It's going to be fun. Right. Yeah. You know, and... and uh, <laughs> yeah, we have nobody. Well, we, no, but we will. But the next night is, is, is Sandler, Spade. Oh, my God. Because uh, it's judged. No, no, so, so last night, what, um, listeners, especially that we poor fellow in Phoenix with a white face, um, <laughs> you, you texted me that Mulaney can't do it. And Mulaney was an if. if no, he was a no, definite. No, was an if. Kroll was an if. Mulaney felt filling. terrible. Yeah, but he's great. So you hit me with, and I just hit you back with poop. But anyway, <laughs> right after that, I went to bed maybe like 5 to 12 or something last night, Sunday night, and I got two emails from Judd. Okay, please add David Spade, Nick Squardson, and Sandler. Oh, wait, don't mention Sandler to my show on Thursday mm. night. And I'm like, we're uphill here, Pete. Uh, <laughs> and that's the part of the Judd. Nobody says no to Judd. Yeah. They work, they work it out. Right. I know. Well, that's what I'm kind of curious about is like when you first uh, started with Largo, mm-hmm. like, was there a period of time where it was hard to get Sweet people? Well, yeah, it's good. Like, yeah, professional. Yeah, it's professional. I'm, I'm appreciating it. There was a moment, it's a wonderful question. I'm sorry, this is just new to me. And I was yeah. just kind of like, I don't really know what I'm going to say. And then in comes Sweet Bell. So, you know, slim. it's funny because when we first started, I, I had a partner um, and he owned Largo mm-hmm. and he brought me in as a third partner and because I knew music and the same and the other. But I booked it and it was extremely successful from the beginning. And I literally yeah. would be like, what happened? How did, what you know what the yeah. and then of course you're in Los Angeles where film TV 
people musically come here not just to do shows but to possibly work on TV films and theater or whatever right. the hell it is so it's the epicenter of that I think anyway and um, and more so than New York I was in New York for a while and I didn't feel that and I desperately felt that there needed to be a community mm. of of stuff because Who's LA's better than Flanny no, nobody, nobody's great. better yeah. than Flanny <laughs> but, uh, but LA's so spread out and then I thought this is a unique place to, to do something so with the comedy thing um, happened because, and I've said this before in an interview for the LA Times or something, but Amy Mann and Michael Penn and Elliot, Rufus Wainwright, John Brown, they were all doing weekly shows, mm. like, you know, at Largo. So this is like late, in, early 97, I think. And, and I was like, I wanted to change the name of Largo because that was the pre, I wanted to call it the residency because I thought that would be a great, huh. you know, feeling or, you know, and, uh, but couldn't change it because of the license. But anyway, there was a re- thing going on. And I was so happy to, as a booker, to mm. go, I've got like the same four people playing once a week. So it was very easy. And then at the end of the month, I was like, we need comedy. Because mm. they were all tuning forever and very serious sto- stories about, you know, <laughs> the women leaving them and the drugs and the. Right. Right. So then. Can I say, by the way, that was so interesting in the Elliot Smith documentary that he wasn't doing drugs right. when he wrote like Needle in the Hay and stuff. It was about. It was supposedly about people that he would see and stuff. I thought oh, that was okay. his big heroin album. Mm. It's definitely felt that way. Yeah. And then, you know, the funny thing is I got through well, the documentary. The well, I think a lot of stuff is kind of scrambled in terms of the release of stuff. So Roman Candle was... The first one. Officially the first one, yeah. right? And that was on the cassette stuff. But in the documentary, I got pretty far into the documentary. They never talk about the second record, which is I know, which is my favorite. Fa- right. We talked about that. That's mm-hmm. my favorite so Elliot weird. Smith record, yeah. for sure. And you can hear the four... Tra- like, he hit stop on the four track right. and stuff. It's, yeah. like, so lo-fi and amazing. Sorry, didn't we have mean great, to I have great recordings of that whole era at Largo where he would go, this is the way I wanted this song to go, but, you know... Okay. And he would always start with, you want a sad song or a happy song? And then people would just always scream out sad songs. And then afterwards, I was like, what is the happy song that you have? Because I don't know. Baby that Britain. album. Yeah, Baby but this, <laughs> this is, I don't think Baby this is like, this is, you know, either or was just about to come out when I met him, I think. Mm. Goodwill Hunting hadn't come out. And he mm. was about to promote that record, and he was. But anyway, the the thing was that it it was such serious subject matter. Yeah, every you needed some night. Ha-has. Yeah. And so I didn't know where to begin, and I've never to this day never been to the Improv, never been to the Laugh Factory or the Comedy no Store, way. right? But I knew that that's where it was. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't. Right. It's not that mm-hmm. I respectfully didn't want to compete with them. I just was like, I don't think I want that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody came to me and said, you know, there's this place called Pedro's Bar and Grill and they have the best comedians and it's over on Las Feliz. And, and so I went and it was a Monday night thing and it was randomly hosted by different people, but it was John Stewart was the first person. <laughs> when I walked in, he was doing stand-up and um, David Cross, Janine, and I think Karen Kilgariff might have hosted it, but it was that. It was that. That was wow. the first thing. Mm. And it was much like the basement here. Like, you, there was no real good sight lines. There were, I mean, <laughs> I just kicked the lights off downstairs. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. see. But yeah. there were poles and stuff, and you couldn't quite see it. And so I went up to the booking guy, and I said, so do you want to do this at Largo? And he was like, are you kidding? Mm. And already Largo had been around for, about, for a while for people to go, that's a listening room. Yeah, we want to do yeah. that. And so I've never heard that term, and it is. Yeah, yeah. it's the r- it's the room where everyone will just be like, "Hello." And oh, then well, Pedro's Bar up. and Grill, by the way, there was taco and drink specials, and nobody was listening. Uh huh. And it was brutal. crazy. That's brutal. And um, David Cross was doing something about I th- I think he was doing something about how far into the Reagan presidency did people know that he had 
the illness and was just mm. you know let's get past the finish line and all mm. these great decisions decisions mm. were made and and it was really political and really smart and really great and I was like ah we need that so and mm. and so we started and then I started infiltrating having music on comedy shows comedy on music shows and right. and um and that's not something new I mean Steve Steve Martin told me that I think that he opened for Aerosmith like he opened for big bands wow. Mm. They were like, okay, Whoa. those guys are making, they're, they're selling out the form. You're going to open for them. And he'd be like, sure, sure, I'll do Whoa. it. Wow, that's and crazy. I, yeah, I can't imagine. Like, he said the audiences for rock shows were very hit and miss, like was very hostile. And he, uh, See, that's one fantastic. of those moves uh, for old Stevie Martz that I would be like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like he's so protected now. Right. Like I always just picture him in a white house, white, like the interior is as white as his suits. Yeah. And he's always <laughs> barefoot in linen and right. tea. And he's always writing or sitting by a pool but never getting in it. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's very protected and appropriate now. But I'm like, you, I wish you had just spread some of that out and you could still be performing. Of course, I don't know this person. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, See, this is say another... no to Aerosmith and right. then maybe you won't hate doing right. stand-up. But you know what he did? He, he found that thing in his life that which is the banjo and bluegrass music which right. is and he can improvise he's great but that's his outlet hey, this and, guy and now, he's, now after yes <laughs> after doing a combination of these bluegrass shows for he's now infusing his own new stand up into it no and it's really funny yeah I've heard and that and it's fantastic I've heard it it's great so and he did his first ever one at Largo this is an interesting story so the agent said listen he'll be backstage Steve Canyon Rangers his backing band will be somewhere else and mm. I said, what, what, where else? Where? And they go, do you have another room? And I'm like, well, we've got a rehearsal space upstairs. That's what they'll be. Mm. Nobody backstage for Steve. So all these laws about, like, don't look at him. Seriously, don't look at him. It's a don't look at him guy? Yeah. And so, <laughs> wow. and so he was doing two shows one night, and his wife, Anne, is this lovely lady. And um, she was the only one allowed backstage. And so, but couldn't look at him. Couldn't, not, not allowed to look. <laughs> and so I had to walk him around the building. And by the way, he's fantastic. So he's very shy. And Maybe. he has a hearing problem. No, but he has it corrected. It was he's got an earpiece and stuff. Yeah, and uh, but the thing was, so he does the show. He barely even said thank you for coming. He did the whole show. Bluegrass, ding 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 ding, tuning 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 tuning, tuning ding 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 ding. Many opportunities to say something. Ding-ling. So like very famous people were on his guest list. The show ends, skid marks. They're all gone. There's nobody in the courtyard, and. It, we're about to. Oh yeah, we let the second audience in. We're about to start the second show, and Steve comes out into the courtyard and says, uh, "Can I, can I speak to you?" And I went, "Yeah." And he goes, "Where are my guests?" And I said, "Oh, they were all told that you're not going to see anybody and that nobody's allowed to talk to you." And he goes, "What what are you talking about?" And he was so embarrassed. Then I go go backstage with him, and he goes, "Oh," and I said, "I'm not trying to bum you out." I said, "I think they just wanted you to enjoy the experience and then catch up with your friends after." I think that, and so I'm trying to be nice about it. Yeah. And so he says, "Well, what did you think of the show?" And I said, "I think it was really great, but you could talk more." And he goes, "Really?" And he goes, "Because I was going to do some bits, and can I run them by you?" And I was like, "In a dressing room, like that small one of the small dressing rooms with Steve." And he reaches for a hanger, and he has a white jacket. For the second show, white jacket. Oh, boy. And he pulls the white jacket down and he takes these things out of the pocket. And they're all these little, almost like napkins of, Ugh. you know, this thing about a rooftop. So I was gonna, this after one song, I was going to say this, this joke. What do you think? And I was like, that's really funny. Second show, it was so much comedy and the band didn't know what to do. They were just kind of standing there like, 
and laughing their asses off. Ah. And um, and then he came back afterwards and he was like, that worked much better. And But it, the show literally was 45 minutes longer. Ah. Oh, my God. And he was and he had so much fun. And then ah. he's done it. The, the, he uses Largo as kind of a workshop for before he goes on a tour or big shows. Mm-hmm. And he's done it each time before each record and stuff. And he is very unique, but he's a very gentle and nice person. But the banjo is his comedy. Yeah. He has yeah. he gets such an outlet with it. Yeah. And he there's nowhere he won't play. It's, would, like, you it's know. like Woody Allen with the clarinet, I feel like. But, yeah, but the, the clarinet for Woody seems to be... I saw him at Michael's Pub, like, wait, years ago, and it was very... <laughs> <laughs> of course. I just got planned. I'm the one who told him to start playing. <laughs> I, I, give, I give him the clarinet. I said, listen, if Artie Shaw can do it, you can do it. No, but I saw him, I saw him, and it was honestly a very faceless experience. The rest of the guys were emoting, but it's Dixieland, and it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. And I love jazz, so I was just like, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Half the room were bored out of their minds, and the other half were like, is he going to say something about Annie Hall? I yeah. Mean, really, they were not there for the right reasons. Right. Yeah. Steve has got it now to the point where everybody knows what it is, and they're there for the bluegrass, and that's right. a great... I don't mm. think that's the case with Woody. Mm. I feel like bluegrass, in my experience, the times I've been to bluegrass shows, good good people, good audiences, right. you know what I mean? And yeah. they're kind of like silly, quirky. So it's, right. they're happy Well, the subject matter of the songs, even Punch Brothers, they're mm-hmm. more successful stuff, like some very serious bluegrass people that we know. Mm-hmm. They're very funny, and the songs are ridiculous, and then the setup is ridiculous, yeah. and so well, yeah, right. You know. And it's better to have people coming for bluegrass and then also getting a little bit of comedy right. than coming for comedy and getting bluegrass. I th- have I you ever just... have you ever seen Leonard Cohen live? No, oh, one no. of the funniest stand-ups I've ever ever really? seen. No way! Oh yeah. my god! He when I saw him, okay, so I saw him in 1979. I went on a date with this girl. I'm like, are you kidding, Leonard Cohen? Like wrist slasher, you know, Suzanne. Yeah. And she's like, no, 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 no. He's got a new record and it's actually quite upbeat. And I'm like, oh. And uh, it wasn't that upbeat at all. But we went <laughs> and he was so funny. He started with, my memories of a child are dark. They're twisted. They could be celebrated or they could not be. And everyone started laughing. And then he went into the song and the second verse is that. Uh, and then you go, oh, okay. And then in between everything, it was a setup, but it was like, or he would just be off the cuff and as funny as you could. And then it would be, hey, that's no way to say goodbye. Or first we take Manhattan. I mean, all these, <laughs> but he was so funny. Yeah. Elliot was never funny between, he was, he would smile, but Didn't he was Didn't he have very, to be in character? Didn't he have to be No, he was very honest. What really? I don't, you know, my experience with Elliot was he would be super nervous even though he knew he was good, he'd always have a shitty guitar, this Yamaha guitar that couldn't quite be, there would be a pickup that would always buzz. Mm. And he kind of, it's not that he used that, but he could have, like at Largo, we have a great guitar that he ended up, I just said, please use this. Mm. And he would play it and everyone was like, oh, it's not buzzing. Yeah. Um, but he was such an amazing guitar player. Mm. Like he was like, if people know about guitars, they're like Leo Kotke, Lindsey Buckingham, this finger picking stuff that is like, try it. Just try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, nobody can really nail, like Rhett Miller, who's fantastic, leaves out chords when he's covering his songs. There's just so many, it's just mm-hmm. so intricate. He comes from a somewhat of a classical background. Yeah. But anyway, the thing about Elliot was he would get up there and depending on his mood, you would know. And sometimes it'd be a little bit of a bummer, but the songs would get you through it. Oh, you know mm. if he was going to be... He was never funny. Yeah. Mm. And there's a, there's a famous um, Autumn DeWilde, who was a good friend of, is a good friend of ours, did a book on Elliot. It's a fantastic book. And I did. I give her five tracks of Largo, Elliot live at Largo. It's mm. really worth mm. checking out. And one of them is um, a country song that he cracks up laughing. 
in the <laughs> middle of it. And it's so refreshing to hear that because the first song is Angela's. The second one might be Clementine. Mm. And it's beautiful. And they're beautifully recorded. And uh, you can get them at, in, as the part of the book. It's the, in, included. Yeah. But to hear him laugh was almost like a relief. Mm. It was almost like the rain we had the other day. It was like, oh, oh yeah, okay. What happened when he got, you, you casually oh. mentioned that he got stabbed. He did get stabbed. Well, he got stabbed. I know that he stabbed to die, but that didn't sound like you said you were with oh, him and he got yeah, stabbed. Yeah, no, this is this was maybe um, pre death three, three, four years before he died. Whoa! I was sitting at the Olargo and it was up. The office was upstairs and there was a window and the parking was underneath. And <laughs> what if you were just like, and I stabbed him? I just decided, I said, <laughs> and then I took him to the hospital. I said, "You're too damn good," and you know it. <laughs> no, it was a, it was really unfunny. It was a drug deal that went. Bad and where uh, at MacArthur Park, and uh-huh. he bought some heroin that was bad heroin, wow. and he um, went back to challenge the guy on the content of his Ooh. purchase, mm. and the guy stabbed him. Oh. Whoa! And he showed up at Largo, and there was blood everywhere in his car and stuff like that. And I said, "You need to go to the hospital. I can't go to the hospital because I, I might get arrested for a drug charge or blah 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 blah." Oh wow! Yeah. And we sat forever at Cedars, oh. and I and he said. Don't use my name. Don't tell them my name, and don't give them your name. And they knew. They were just like it's another. And he was, by the way, very, very like he had been using drugs. So it was a really tough time. And that's when that was the final straw for me. That was after that. I just went to the head of his record label. I went to his manager. I went to his A and R guy, and everyone that was in his life. And then John, poor John Bryan, was producing him at the time, and they were making this beautiful thing. But he would come to the studio and just pass out on the floor. And, mm. and I said, John, what if, what if he dies here? How, how are we going to feel about this? You know? Right. Mm. And so we did this intervention thing. And it was after all of that. And it gave us plenty of cause to say, hey, you're, this is not working out for you right now. You know? Right. It's hard when, you know, you have people like that, that, you know, Benjamin Franklin, name drop. <laughs> yeah. He used to say there were Smartest two... Smartest man ever, possibly, right? Is that true? Well, I mean, look at his inventions and everything else. Well, Flanny, I just didn't know if you When were. I gave him his first clarinet... I, <laughs> I gave him that key. <laughs> and, and, the shoes, and the shoes, he just threw one of them away. <laughs> With the big buckle? That was neat. But he talks about how there's two types of people, and there's uh, regular people, for lack of a better term, and then there's suicides. There are people mm-hmm. that... Are always they're always living to die, mm-hmm. kind of like candle in the wind. Right. So it's like, what do we do with these people that he, Elliot had to know he was killing himself? You know what I mean? Nobody uh, or well, I, I don't know because I've never been and unfortunately I've never been involved with too many drug addicts. Yeah, because you know, I make that choice in my life of like I, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think a lot of them just they live in the moment. And then never passed. I mean, Mitch Hedberg, I don't, I don't think he ever, there was a doubt that he was going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Even if it was an accident. But yet you're doing this thing that is like, it's like this poor fellow that, um, from, where is he from? The guy that died doing that gliding thing. You know, 23 years of age. He's in the news last night. Um, you know, in a, the suit. The, the glide earth, suit? The glide suit. I just saw one of those. Someone died in one of those? Yeah, one of the famous guys. Oh. He's one of the true, like, he, he's climbed every um, peak of every continent. And, and his he mom, died doing that. Yeah, and in the news last night, they had all these surfers going out in Malibu to do the circle and, you know, because he was a surfer too. Mm-hmm. And his mum was, as they said on the news, was inconsolable because she couldn't oh. accept that he was gone. And I was like, mm. he's been jumping off mountains since he was seven. Right. Yeah. In an air-filled suit. Yeah. And I'm not, God love her, but I mean, really, you know, yeah. how could you not... But the, see this coming because I think they don't. They live in the moment. You know. Well, okay. Right. Talking about living in the moment. When you're like going up, so I think about death a lot lately. Shane, somebody. Shane. That's the fellow. Oh, that's suit. the guy who yeah. fell. I was going to say that. 
that's a shame. That's, <laughs> okay. That's not something you should say when uh, your when your brain is just like yeah, yeah. make a make a word joke. Your Shane brain. My Shane brain. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, death. We all have to deal with it. Right. And then when you're trying to convince someone who's doing something that's very, very bad for them. Right. Even I, I have people in my family, you know, uh, overweight and constantly eating cheese right. with whipped cream on You know what I mean? Right. So there's all different versions of old Benny Franks's virgins? suicides. <laughs> different virgins. <laughs> right. There's apparently fat ones. Three fat virgins. Right. Big, thick, yep. juicy virgins. And I love them. <laughs> right. But so when you're, when you're trying to combat somebody, let's say uh, Mitch or, or any of these people... Uh, and it's very tricky when you know these people because I wouldn't want to do this thought experiment with Harris because I don't know what to say to Harris. Right. Mm -hmm. But you start saying to somebody like, you're going to die, and they're like, well, we all die. They kind of have this like trump card you know yeah. what i mean it's like you're sitting me down and telling me i'm gonna die and it's like yep and so are you and you're saying like a, a longer life would be better and i'm saying i'd rather just do this drug or whatever but, you know with harris's thing particularly in, in your podcast the thing that i thought was fantastic was you never judged him and you were mm -hmm. genuinely and it wasn't something that, you were surprised by like wait what you went where yeah, okay and 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 you were shocked by it but also for somebody like that, they go, this guy knows me, he didn't know anything, and he thinks, wow. So I think that with Harris, it was enough for him even talking to you going, yeah, that was, even re recollecting it in front of somebody right. was yeah. like, yeah, that wasn't good. I always remember the moment where I say, you should write a movie about this. And yes. Goes, or I, say, I think I say, I'm going to write a movie about this, and he goes, I'm writing a movie he, about yeah, this. Right. Yeah, right. Like, good, and it's just a little project over the, over the rainbow, you know. It's so <laughs> tricky, because I'm, I'm so interested in the correlation between creative people and self-destruction. Mm -hmm. And I think so often with people they uh, like that who are so creative and almost burdened right. with this perspective that also makes them create beautiful things or funny right. things, but the downside is that they are carrying this, this it's weight. It's a weight, yeah. Um, but I feel like so often they, they value their art or their craft more than than their own life because right. living is such a burden. So with like Elliot and and I think with Harris, it's almost like once it starts affecting your work, that's that's when it crosses the line. But it really was affecting Harris's work, and it was affecting Elliot's work to the point where he needed to do gigs yeah. to make money because he hadn't put out a record in a while, and he was spending a lot of money doing that. And you know, so it's not like yeah. they were so rich at that point, you know? Right. But I do think that there was an element, for, like Harris even mentions that he was able to kind of continue his job. Right. With that was problem. another disturbing part. Was yes. he, yeah. he was kind of like I would be on script, and he was such a genius. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I'm not doing that just in a post mortem sort of way. I mean, right. like everyone knew, and everyone knew that he was a genius, and we told him when he was here. So it's not just an upgrade because right. he died. Uh, that he would be on script, he'd bang out the script right in a couple days, and then he'd have five days off, yeah. and that would be the heroin time. The thing, and I don't want to change the subject. Did you? No. Uh, I think there's something strange about the loneliness of it, mm. meaning, like, we're here all together, and right. that's the beauty of community, and that's right. the beauty of hanging out outside of Largo, and we're all kind of there with each other, witnessing each other, and reflecting each other back to one another. Mm -hmm. And then there's something about, like, sometimes I get that kind of lonely feeling when people are like, oh, Pete, like, I'm going to make these things up. Uh, well, let's go with sports. You're on a basketball team, and you play hockey, and you just won the soccer trophy. And it's like, how do you find the time? And you're like, 
oh no, there's so much time that you're alone. Right. And then with the hair, my point really, a better example would be with heroin, it's like you're not with me all day. Right. I can still maintain this relationship with you. And I had eight hours today where I was going, getting, doing, recovering mm-hmm. drugs. Mm-hmm. And that's like a very sad and isolating thing where you're like, you're kind of reminded, like, oh, if I just dip in with a couple people, mm. I have the illusion of a regular. But I mean, life. it's not just addiction. I mean, all these athletes that are like just slowly coming out as gay, like for years, or or mm. you know, go back to creative. We people. watched the Luganus thing that you told us. Yeah, about. Mm. that was crazy. Yeah. Um, but like uh, Oscar Wilde, who was one of the greatest writers ever, and he, you know, it wasn't until he was put in jail for this homosexuality and wrote ra- Ballad of Reading Jail, but like it was like. He was living with this. He was married. He, you know, all these mm-hmm. things. But he was living with this thing that he couldn't share with anyone. But a great part of his life was that. Mm-hmm. And so he would lie and have to make excuses and hope right. to not be caught because it was illegal. And- I really right. think it's, it's one of the feelings of life. Like, I, that reminds me of my family right. and the slow inclusion of what it is I do with yeah. my family. Right. Like, you have this secret life. And then you're like, hey, mom, I know this is absurd, but it's just how I can relate. I'm like, sometimes I say fuck. You know what right. I mean? Like, and, then, right. and sometimes I talk about you and dad. And like, mm-hmm. sometimes I do stand and then they you kind of try and break down those things. And that's right. a big part of this podcast is being like, what if we just don't have any secrets? Right. Like, even if I can seem like clean and kind of like a toothpaste kind of guy, I can't, I can't share enough how there are some days where you're just like, oh, I can't face reality and I'm going to watch movies. Probably Magnolia starring Flanny. <laughs> the featuring, featuring. No, it was in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I think with I think with some of these people now, we just because we talked mostly about Harrison and uh, Elliot, is that the sad thing about it that we don't really talk about it is that we weren't enough. Like mm. family, friends, and music, and and the art, and it's just a, not enough for these people to go. Fuck it, I want right. that more. Right, right. And that's the, the tragedy of addiction. Sad. You know? know, it's just like it's. Not alone do they think, I, like you, we're talking about living in the moment, where they're living in the second because they're not thinking about, I'm not going to make this or I'm going to make it. It's just all about like, mm. oh, okay, now nah, I'm relieved from right. that. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very heavy. Yeah. Very, very yeah. Heavy. That's interesting because I do think that there's like possibly the more you have, the more tor- turmoil you have going on internally, the less almost the your family and friends um, affect you positively right. because you're just like I'm living this whole secret right. disaster in my own head and you can only feel so close to people if they don't fully understand right. and if you won't share right. that that's what's going on yeah loneliness that's that's the loneliness that I love movies and TV that's about loneliness right. I really do I think it's a big thing that most people are just kind of as I always say they're the stars of their own movies right. I'm me all the time right. you know what I mean and I right, just kind right. of pop yeah. into your awareness right. mm-hmm. but then you don't know what I'm doing when I go home it might be something harmless like you know uh, maybe I'm a porn addict or something right. but it could be right, something right. really bad well that's mm-hmm. it and, but I mean the thing too is I thought years ago I remember like I can't remember where I was specifically but there was this euphoria of just being at peace with the fact that I am me um, because I used to think to myself I wish I was religious this was after my mother died and she was very 57 she was quite young and mm-hmm. I remember thinking okay so I'm going to use I'm going to this whole experience of her dying, which we knew she was dying, she knew she was dying. I was with her every day and night and held her hand as she died. And I thought, and I wasn't religious. And I thought, if ever there's a moment to feel that there might be something, I'm going to let this be, let this be the time. Mm. And there was nothing. Mm. And afterwards, I had this thing coming back on the airplane and, and just sitting there and, and thinking, God, I wish I was religious. Yeah. You know, like the Buddhists who believe whatever. I mean, Oscar Wilde, for all his stuff, 
wrote a poem called Death is Not the End. And so maybe he was fine with it all, like just going, well, this is this part. The next part is, you know, something good's going to happen or I get another chance or whatever it is, you know, well, the, the Buddhist's well, ways of, you know. What was that yeah. What was that like? I mean, you're with your mom and because I, I, I think about that all the time. Right. And, you know, I love Ramdas and stuff and he yeah. counsels dying people. Right. Or he did. And he teaches a lot about it. And I listen to those lectures and, and he talks about... Um, you don't want to just like theorize someone else's fear away. Right. You just kind of like want to witness it and, and kind of absorb it mm-hmm. and be there with them. Right. But I worry, like, if my mom is, uh, I don't even like talking about this, yes. obviously, no, but and, and she's and passing away yeah. and I'm there with her, right. do I really want to be like, it's all paths up a different mountain? Or am no, I just going to be you'll like, you'll find that there'll be no, so mom. many silences and that that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Depending yeah. on the circumstances, my circumstances for quite a few people in my life since my mother's thing has been um they've been on a morphine uh diet as they call it towards the end so there's not there's the person isn't there right Mm. and so but before that which is a lot of pain and stuff like that but in those moments that you just kind of go we're glad we're getting these moments this is it you know we're here i could be you know and i i sacrificed a lot to do that you know in order to just take off and take care of her my sister and i took care but when i was a kid when i was like 17 and a half i um before I came to America, I was a, a, a student and I studied psychology and medicine. I worked a lot in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And at the age of 17 and a half, I was told to just stay by this patient and let the nurse know when he dies. Mm-hmm. So, and 17 was, years old? Yeah. Holy I was too young to go to college and too young really to work in, the, in, in the, um, the hospital. But I was a volunteer and they worked out something. And I remember it was a night thing. It was like four o'clock in the morning and he had had pneumonia and they had wrapped him in tinfoil. This, to th- this thermal thing, this coat with the inside was foam and the outside was tinfoil. Uh-huh. And I just sat there and it was this... <laughs> the noise of the tinfoil, right? And it would just go on and on. Him breathing. Him breathing, just like back and forth. And then it would get more exacerbated. It would go... <laughs> wow. And I'd be like, this is it. This is, he's going to go. And I'm like, okay. Are you scared or are you what? No, it was just a very bizarre thing because I actually didn't get to see... I made a choice of not looking at his face either because he was turned to his side. Mm. So he was in a prone position. He had been wrapped... They knew he was going to die, but he had, had been suffering from, like, coldness in his body, so they tried to warm him up. And um, it was just the last thing was this... And that was how he passed. And I went... And the first thing I thought of it, like, I waited a minute before I went to the nurse, and I just went, well, he's out of that. That's, that's such a relief. It wasn't in any way cold. I was just very happy that that person wasn't doing that anymore. Right. When it's your mother. And honestly, I'm not kidding. I, I'm, so my mother died when I was 33, I had had many people whose parents died tragi- tragically, like fast, like the, you know, whatever happened to be, and I would get a shiver thinking about my mother dying. Like, mm. oh god, I hope, you know, mm-hmm. even like I hope I go first because I can't deal with that. Mm. And since then, I've lost both my parents, and I was very close to my mother. There's such a relief. Like, take God, lover just lost her biological father, mm-hmm. and I, she wasn't that close, but Steve Agee was very, very close to his father. And I just said, the only thing I can say is, having been through it, is. You'll get past it, but you never get over it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And just be aware and let the tears come because at Christmas time, a movie will mm. come on. It'll be some Adam Sandler movie, silly movie, mm. and you'll start crying, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. But I actually have the solace of, like, no matter what I'm doing, I kind of end up talking to my mom every day anyway. Mm. It's mm. great. There are very sad moments, like being on a beach with the kids and going, they never got to meet her. Right. Mm. They're young, and so it's like, and, and they would have loved. But. I include her in the in the conversation of her name is Eleanor, and, and I just say, 
grandma or Eleanor, you know, blah, blah. And they feel, they're too young, they're eight and six, but they really feel her present because I, you know. Well, even from a right. materialist perspective, her DNA and it's yeah. that Tig thing. Very, like when Tig wanted mm, to have her totally. mom's. Yeah. And my son looks like, uh, he looks like my mom. His eyes are very like my mom. And it's just like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm. The Tig documentary, which is interesting, which is like the, the thing that, I found I told a story because they asked me to do. I, I was in it very little, which is great. But I, but the reason I said I would do it was because they shot most of it at Largo, and there was a camera in my face all the time, and I hate that. I just mm. don't. Mm. And so I said, "Listen, why don't you just use an, a moment of me relaying my experience?" And there's a unique thing that I can add to this. There's a color I can add. And Zach did the same thing, and so did Sarah. So the three of us sat at the Largo piano for 90 minutes each mm. and we just said everything that we feel about it and it was very kind of cathartic in its own way but mm-hmm. the thing that I found was that Cedars is right beside uh, Largo mm-hmm. you know on, on La Cienega and I had been there with Todd Glass who had a heart attack on the stage at Largo mm-hmm. um, after Sarah's shows we know and I was with him and Sarah and I sat through the night with him to make sure he was okay and three months before that um my, my one of my kids was born. Before that, another kid was born. I lost my friend Loretta at the same hospital. And so I'm very used to it. So I said to Tig, listen, I'm going to be with you through this whole thing, unless I have to work, but I'll be there back and forward. And her aunt was there, and she was very, very nice, but she was very uncomfortable with the, the just being in a hospital in general. And mm-hmm. she had just lost Tig's mum as her sister, and so she'd been through a lot. And it was all very sudden. And um, Sarah and I were there, and for some reason... We were allowed to take turns to go in right before she was pre-op, so she was about to have the mastectomy, double mastectomy. And her doctor was the coolest lady. Like you know, it's hard to believe there's cool ladies, but this <laughs> one was so hard. And uh, <laughs> she was, but she was just like totally reassuring, good bedside manner, the whole mm-hmm. thing. And um, so it was my turn. Sarah went in for twenty minutes and came out, and she goes, "Hey, I'm going to go home for a bit and come back and whatever." And we didn't know what time the operation was going to be. And so the her aunt said, "I think I'm going to go shopping." I said, "That's a great idea." Just do that. Do whatever you normally do. Just go shopping. And she'd driven up from San Diego or somewhere. So she took off. And then the doctor comes out and says, um, you want to come in? I said, oh, sure. So I thought, I'm going to go in and just hang out with Tig. And as it became very clear. And again, I'm very experienced with hospitals. I walked in and she was definitely anesthetized. So she was in the early stages of just about to go, you know. Yeah. And the doctor said, uh, you're not family, but you're a friend. I said, that's right. And she said, um, I, can you be a witness to, I need you to sign something. We've just explained to Tig that we're not just doing a double mastectomy. We've found through the recent test that we're going to have to take a lot more out, lymph nodes, stuff. So we're going to go deeper and we just need you to sign. Have you done any drugs today? Have you drank today? And I said, no. And I signed it and I went over and held her hand and I just said, it's going to be fine. And I really did feel this with Mm -hmm. Tig. Like even on the night that she announced it at Largo in the famous show that's become famous. But then they wheeled her off into the operating room and they said, you can hang here or you can wait, but it could be quite a while. And I said, oh, no, I think I'm going to go outside. So I went outside and neither Sarah or her aunt were there. And I just sat there and I went, how did that happen? Mm. How did I happen to be the one to sign this thing? And, you know, I hadn't done any drugs. And I wondered, and I thought to myself, (laughs) I'm sure Sarah had a puff just to get through this. Would she have have said, you know, get that guy in here? But anyway, that was the, the interesting perspective of how it touches different people's it's not you're just a friend of Tig's. Like, I mean, I've known Tig for years, but there was this just like suddenly I'm in a hospital and I'm signing to say that they're going to take more of your body than you think. Right. Mm. Yeah. But I'm sure that Tig, it, like you're you're a perfect person to do right. that for her. Yeah, yeah. She would feel so yeah, You're the farmer. You're, I'm the farmer. I'm going to dig. I we need to, yeah. to be signing Well, no, I know, but it, but it is that thing is like a lot of people would probably freak out and I'm really 
even though I never use my degree in psychology or medicine and stuff at this year, I use it all the time. So right. it's one of those things that that's a good experience of, mm-hmm. you know. What do we do about all that? What, what are you learning from all these like heavy experiences? I'll preface it by this. I was recently, I sent Val a picture. I was on a plane uh, from Toronto to Detroit uh-huh. and it was, it looked like a Power Wheels. You right. know what I mean? It was tiny. Right. There was no door between me and the cockpit. Right. And I've been on a four-seater plane, but not for a long time. Not as a grown person who's very aware of his own yeah. mortality. So I'm on the plane, and uh, I'm listening to Kirtan, you know, like kind of like chanting stuff. I'm doing a mantra. I'm trying to... Right. And then at a certain point, I just took it out and stopped trying to meditate. And I was just like, no, I'm just scared. Like, right. I'm afraid. Right. I'm a scared mm-hmm. person. It all went out the window. Right. And that, that, that's not an uncommon experience. We all want to stay present we all want to stay serene and we all right. want to stay at peace and all that stuff but what, what do we do you you've seen all this you've seen your mom yeah you've seen a lot of loss you've been there with tig this like what do we do we're, we i think you get i think you share it with other people your experiences when you, when you become there's all my milestones you haven't hit 40 yet so when, when 40 comes along you go wow and then suddenly or a kid comes there's huge things in your life that are all about to come that are just like it really gives you perspective. So on the airplane, my whole thing is I can't control anything. Right. I've given into this. I'm in this seat and destiny, that's, <laughs> there's nothing I can do. It would be so great to so be able to get there I do and go, that. destiny! <laughs> but the, but, no, but I do. And I also feel that like with life in general, I honestly, every morning I'll wake up and I'm just grateful that I'm not on an airplane. But I will actually have things where I'll go. Since then, me too. That, but this is a really strange thing. Is, is I just realized this the other day that I do this either shaving or just boiling the kettle waiting for the tea and I just go be prepared Mm. each day that there might be something that comes up Mm. you know and the other thing that is a huge which I can plug it here is the other thing for me that's happened since my second kid which is Seamus he's six and a half and he was diagnosed at the age of one with um, this condition. I, I have told you this about. It's called neurofibromatosis and it's one and it's about one in 2700 kids randomly get this illness and it's um, tumors that develop on the spine or on the nerve centers and it's just it's not genetic it's the, the there's no treatment for it and um, it's not a killer but it can learn learning disabilities blindness um, immobility in general are, are huge mm-hmm. things so he was diagnosed with that and after six months he was six months old we were at the pediatrician and he had this little birthmark and she goes hey just so that you know that could be something more than just the birthmark. We'll know at a year. So at a year... We'll know in a year. We'll, well, no, we can't diagnose anything until he's a year old. It could be just birthmarks. And oh. so at the age of one year, he had eight little birthmarks. And my wife was so great. She, we both bathed him, but she was like, well, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. And then so at that point, she had just eased herself into doing research on neurofibromatosis just to see. Yeah. So when the doctor gave us the diagnosis, my, my wife was like, yep, that's what it is. I knew that, but thanks for confirming it. And so we have to go through series of MRIs and stuff to make sure he's okay because it's early detection is the big thing. They can't really operate on them because he'll be paralyzed. So And he mm-hmm. doesn't have any tumors at all. Mm. But he's about to turn seven, and we're part of this organization that is trying to raise awareness for NF. It's what it's simply called because for lay people, neurofibromatosis is like... Mm. Yeah. And, um, but that's been a great lesson for me because it's just kind of like he's perfectly fine. He's learning great, you know, and... Mm. But we do these walks once a year, and there's a kid that is his age has had 17 brain surgeries and has spent most of his life in a hospital, in mm. Children's Hospital Los Angeles, most of his life. 
and we get updates from his mum who on Facebook, you know, Zachary's in again, blah, 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 blah. So those things to me bring everything down to, okay, what am I doing? I'm going to spend my, my life with my family, which is you included, like, yeah. you know, people I love. Nighttime I'm going to work, it's going to be the most fun I can make it. You yeah. know, because it's people I love. As I said, I committed to the fact that it's not going to be right. on the mountain, yeah, the volcano. Excuse and me. then, so yeah, and so and so, so my thing is, it's just kind of like, is spotting when people need a little bit of help, and then trying to, if I can help, I can help. But also mm-hmm. using life experience because I'm well aware that I have friends that are seventy and mm-hmm. seventy-five, and I remember my grandfather. But like at that age, just things start to fall off. You mm-hmm. need operations. Every three days, another friend or somebody you knew dies, mm. and so that's twenty years away from me. So at the moment, and but also these random fucking shootings and stuff. There's so many things that right. you know. Well, you that's just, the airplane we're all on, right? You right. know what right. I mean? Exactly. Like, yeah. I I am bought into the illusion that I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm not in a propellered airplane right now, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that's so troubling. One of the many things is that we're like, it's oh, we're constantly on an airplane. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so two other interesting things is when I was nine, we lived behind our school, our secondary school, which is like your junior high high school. And next to it was a church that we kind of went to, but we just give up. We were born Catholics, but in in Belfast in particular, they were pitting uh, Catholics against Protestants and, Mm. and whatever people believe. That's still going on. And it's the British presence of trying to rationalize that it's the Irish people fighting each other, which has never been the case. Huh. It's, it's the Irish people were predominantly Catholic fighting to get the English out, who were predominantly Protestant. Mm. But so the world thinks that the Catholics and Protestants hate each other, you know. Mm. So from Belfast, I can say that that's not the case. But yeah. when we were nine, a bomb... <laughs> <Just> nationalities. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nationalities hate each other. <laughs> when we were nine, a bomb blew up. The, there were, in 1972, when I was eight, there was over 1,500 bombs detonated in Belfast, which is a small town. Mm-hmm. So yeah. every night there was another, wow. and it would go. The noise would go on forever, and um, so and and we lived. Can in I the, interrupt for a second? Yeah. Yikes! Yeah. Oh Horribleness. That's all. And, I but the say. funny thing is that we always thought, always thought we're we're never going to get affected by this. It's never. It's always. I mean, it's always those bad people over there fighting, and so one night at two o'clock in the morning a bomb blew our church into bits and it had an iron cross. It was kind of a modern looking church for the seventies. You know, it was like a Mm. stucco kind of thing and it was next to the school and the crucifix, the vertical part of it disappeared. They never found it It either burnt, but it was metal. And the horizontal part flew through the air, went through the roof of our house and went between our two sisters beds, queen beds, through the floor of their bedroom and into the kitchen and burned a hole and we had to get the fire department and they put the thing out. What? And that sounds like, I mean, you can't make that up, but that happened. That's, oh, oh my And my parents, my parents had that life moment of like, oh, it can happen to us and we're not right. going to let it. And so they moved us out of Northern Ireland. Wow. And they literally packed up very fast. My dad said, forget the job, I'll find something. Very Belfast? Very Belfast. <laughs> So that's the thing is that in there. So those are those moments that they they're instilled in you forever. That right. you're just like, okay, that was pretty. But close. that is just gorgeous. So I, I, when you said that you were like, I, I decided to just. That sounds to me like a person that's gaining perspective. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what's going to happen when I'm forty, but I, I hear what you're saying. Well, it's now like, I'm fifty, and so yeah. it's like I've seen so many things, yeah. Elliot. Uh, Elliot, and these are profound things in my life. My life, but Elliot was a really great friend, but. 
I've had closer friends, and I have closer friends like John Bryan and, and Jack, and different people. Zach, you you know that I'm so grateful to have in my life yeah. that I do look for things of like, oh, are they okay? Is everything okay? Good, we're great. You know, there's right. not an awful lot I can do about it. But if somebody needs money, or you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that seems little, but at times it really is a lot and stuff. I'm in a position now, or if somebody is needing help, like with with, you know, I just need a show. I need to do a show. You know, right, I'm losing are, my mind. <laughs> Yeah, you're on the you're on the opposite side of things, but there are performers that have come to me recently that are just not feeling relevant, and they're really really big. And I just go, we can ma- what? No. Mm. And but you know, so the, so there's certain things like that that uh, professionally I can, I can do. You know. Yeah, mm. I just think it's so beautiful how you. Um, I think that there you have options when when crazy things happen to you that are right. unexpected. You know, you can put it in the, like, life is short, yeah. embrace the things that are good, like love and friendship and right. things. Ooh, or you can put it in the, like, this this is all too heavy and meaningless and there's chaos right. and terrible things happen yeah. back. And I really honestly think that there is just so much... The, the light in you that everybody is so drawn to you has to do with the fact that you just take those experiences and you add them to the, like, life is short, I'm right. going to love the people. But you know what? This is the thing is that you have the same thing. You have it as a performer, but she has it in tons, which is this emanation of light, which is people are drawn to you and they'll tell you things that they would never tell anybody else because they trust you. But also they're just <laughs> relaxed in your in your company. And I have that. Yeah, and I've had that do. since I was a kid. And That's I, great. You know. But um, yeah. and it's one of those things that I don't revel in it too much. But I do know that I can kind of like, like Karen Kilgariff said to me. She said I had a great therapy session, and I said, <laughs> "Oh, good, we're having coffee." And I said, "That's great that you're, you know, it's working out for you." Because right. it's not that I'm not a proponent for therapy, but it's just like some people go for very, very long times, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she switched therapists and have gone really good. And I said, "So how how's it? How's it?" Uh, what was so good? And she goes, well, you know that feeling of going into a room and you're just like, what, what are people thinking about me? I talked about that and I got, kind of got through that a bit. And, you know, and she goes, you know, you, know, you know what I mean, right? And I said, I have no idea. I know what you mean, but I have never felt that. Right. I said, are you talking about like maybe a doctor's office? You walk in and there's a waiting room. She goes, exactly that. Yeah. And I said, all I'm thinking about is, is it going to be good news, bad news? What's going on with the parking? Right. <laughs> did, I wear, did I wear pants? Like, right. I'm not thinking about anything about people. I've never thought, what do people think of him? But there right. are people that are like you that freak me the fuck out. Mm. Right. Like, we know, like, uh, I call them dog people. They're d- dog people that are just like, I want to go. Let's go. There's a right. new, there's a new uh, quilting place. Let's mm-hmm. go quilt. Mm-hmm. And they make me panic. And that's when I really feel like an artist because I'm like, I must retreat. Right. But mm-hmm. then there's a calm, the flanny, the, mm-hmm. the 2.0s are the calm ones. Right. And I also just want to agree that Valerie has that. Oh, that's very kind. Are we done? You, no, no, that's 90 minutes. We, oh, because start... there's a story I have to tell. Oh, no, no, we don't have to finish. No, no, no. But because when we said we'll do the podcast, I said, I'll talk about the murder. I want to hear it. Yes. Please. <laughs> I wrote down. Murder. Did you write that down? I'll write down murder right okay. there. Well, um, no, because. Because when we talked about the podcast, I thought, like, I am not famous, so Glenn Hansard's been before me, all these people, so we should start with the top about the murder. So you put that up at the top. And yeah, then, we'll cut yeah. this um, at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just do another No, but so the minutes. funny thing is people will walk into Largo and they'll go, oh, this is really nice. I thought it was going to be horrible. I thought it was going to be... I don't know what they thought, you know. But people, when I came to L.A., which was, like, for the first time was 91, and I couldn't wait to go to Sunset Boulevard and see the Whiskey A Go Go, the Roxy. Yeah. And they are fucking toilets. <laughs> but I have these recordings of Van Morrison at the Troubadour. And I walked in and it's like, oh, Jesus, it smells of piss. And it's horrible. And I'm like, why would Van Morrison have played there? Like, why would yeah. he, you know, not knowing anything about go. anything. Yeah. So, um, 
But people walk into Largo and they don't know the history, and I love that. I just love that they don't know anything about it, and that there's a lot that I haven't talked about. And this is one of the things that so. <laughs> in while Elliot was doing great, and every Machedberg was like everybody was performing at Largo, and every, a lot of people would probably figure that ninety seven, ninety eight was that was the time. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't. It was a time, but it was <laughs> yeah, it was great. And I'm not not romantic about it, but. Um, John Bryan and I would go, he would play every Friday night at Largo, pack the place out, and, and, and like, this is right before he worked with Kanye West, but he was working with Fiona Apple and Rufus Wainwright and all these people, and mm-hmm. everybody wanted to work with John Bryan. Mm-hmm. There was a place called the Silent Movie Theatre, which is now Cinefamily mm-hmm. on Fairfax, which was right up the street. And right before his sound check, or around that time, we would go up, and if there was a Buster Keaton film on, we would go in there. And so we would go together. So, wait, 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 you and John would? Yeah. We hadn't done it that much, but for some reason I started going because his sound checks got longer and longer, and I would show up, let everybody in, and then just go up the street and watch. And there was an old organist who would play, and it was great. And you'd watch it, and it was kind of a falling-down place, and mm. it was just like, you know. And I made it my mission to find out, what's this story about this place? I mean, I just mm-hmm. walk in as a customer. So then I met the owner, and it was this very nice gay gentleman prancing. And he was, uh, and he was nice, but he, you know, a bit aloof. And, and then I immediately fit, felt like he was hitting on me. And then also when he found out about Largo, he was like, okay, how can we make this work? How can we, mm-hmm. we, you know, it was this. How can we? So, we? Uh, so anyway, I, after a while, I was like, well, I've seen Buster Keaton. So I've Harold Lloyd and, you know, oh, all the stuff that they were showing. But there was such a unique experience going because the organist playing with it. So one night. That sounds uh, great. I it was. It was fantastic. And it was a, definitely a slice of, pa- of the past. One night. We have to close Largo because the whole street... And now, well, this is a sold-out show, and I can't remember who it was, but I had to con- contact the artist at two, 2 o'clock in the afternoon because I said, I can't even get into Largo. The whole street's closed off. There's cars, p- police cars from Beverly to Melrose, mm. and nobody can get to their business. And I called the lady from Cantor's, who owned Cantor's, and she's like, yeah, we, we've just, everyone's to stay in. We don't know for how long. And I said, but I can't even get into my business. And she was like, yeah. This is before cell phones. You know, so mm. nobody really had cell phones. So I was calling her from a payphone on Melrose, mm. which was the only one I was like, ah, who else do I know? There wasn't a community of businesses that cared for each other, you know. And um, so there'd been a murder at the silent movie theater. And the old gentleman that I talked about, his name was Lawrence, had been shot and killed. And the teller lady that was in the concessions that would take your ticket, she was shot, maybe killed. And the murderer was running around somewhere on Fairfax with a gun. Oh. This is what we were led to believe. And so this went on for hours and hours. And then about two o'clock in the morning, I got a call and they were like, you can go into your businesses, but like blah, blah, blah. So I had to try and call people. I couldn't even tell the customers. We, we had a book of reservations and I, you know, I couldn't even get in to get the numbers to call people. Mm. So everyone just put it together that they can't get in. But it was a huge event mm. at the time. For days afterwards, people were like, all the police came and talked to everybody. They're like, do you know anything? Did you see anything? Nobody saw anything, nobody knew anything. And so then th- there was yellow tape all around the silent movie theater. And I was like, after all this, that's what's going to close this place down. So mm. yeah. I left a message on the answer machine saying, this is Flanagan from Largo. I knew Lawrence. I'd like to do a benefit or help any way that I can to keep the rent going while this thing goes on. Mm-hmm. So if there's somebody that can point me towards the owner, I would like to do that. I'm just thinking, now you're a suspect. Right. <laughs> well, no, I, I did think about that. And I actually did tell the police. Hi, uh, this is Flanny. Yeah. That's the, a real name. So there was, this, there, was this guy, <laughs> there was this guy called Detective Hamilton who was a great guy and he became the head of this whole thing. So I was in cahoots with this guy from the beginning. I said, mm. listen, what's the story? And they're like, they're, they're probably going to have to sell this thing. It was losing money. Mm. And uh, 
the only person that seems to know what's going on is the projectionist. And I said, okay. So I called the projectionist. <laughs> when and he has that back. ever said? Yeah. The only man that seems to have his wits about him is the projectionist. <laughs> this is a, Well, I think about Patton Oswalt's wife, Michelle, who's doing a book about all this kind of stuff. And I think this is, I mean, it's obviously a movie, but I'm doing, yeah. a, I'm almost finished a book of short stories and this is one of them. It's called Asylum Murder. So, but anyway, the, so the gist of it is, I, ca- I leave a message. I get a call from James, the projectionist, going, hey, man, they're, they're about to take this place. We reached out to Spielberg. We reached out to other people to try and just take it over, you know, because this tragedy is happening and all of us lost our jobs and nobody can get into the place. And I said, well, what would it take? I'll do a benefit and maybe raise awareness. So we did a benefit and we had the old organist mm. come and play with John Bryan. Hmm. We had different people perform. <laughs> ABC News, CBS News, all of them showed up outside and people were interviewed and they were like, yeah, it's a community thing. And then it dawned on me at like showtime that most of this audience have never been to it, don't care about it, but what the fuck, we're doing something here, right? Mm. So <clears throat> we raised the money, and uh, I put the money in th- through the police officer. I said, listen, I don't want it to go to anywhere they shouldn't be, so like it'll go into an escrow account, or you know, they'll figure it out. So the projectionist was there, and he st- stood up, and he said, I'd like to thank everyone for helping us out. You know, we all lost our jobs, including this organist who's 87 years of age, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the organist never spoke except for when John Bryan was playing along. And John Bryan is, you know, definitely a genius when it comes to music. And John hit a wrong note at one point or a different note at one point, And he goes, oh, sorry. And the only thing that the projectionist said was, never apologize. This is during the performance. So this has become a catchphrase for him and I since, never apologize. And so, so what happened was... After the benefit, we're sitting at the bar, and I talked to the projectionist, and I said, so what are your plans? And he goes, well, look, you know, I mean, things are rough, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to get some money myself, and if you could lend me any money. And I said, I can't do that, but, you know, whatever. Everyone's a suspect, right? <laughs> I had already decided that this guy was extremely dodgy. And so I called the police, and I said, listen, are you looking at this guy? And they goes, believe me, we're looking at this guy. Why? What have you got? And I said, well... He was asking me to, to, you know, can he borrow money and this, that, and the other. And I says, okay, well, we're trailing him as a possible suspect. So be very, so be very aware. Oh, wow. And so, detect- yeah. so it, gets, it gets good. So, de- de- detective- you just Elliot Smith does. Yeah, yeah. Good, right? Yeah. <laughs> detective Hamilton then called me and said, listen, if he imparts any more information, either write it down or just, and I said, I've got a photographic memory, genuinely, so I'll remember everything. So... He came to see John Bryan the next Friday night. Hadn't seen him. And, and he, he asked if he could come. I said, of course. And he goes, would it be okay? I'm, I'm in between places right now if I left a few things with you. And I said, what kind of things? And he goes, well, there's a really nice suit. And I said, sure, you can put it in my office. So he arrived with a box which had seven plates of Disney, uh, play, like Walt Disney, Seven Dwarfs. Is this John or is this This the, is the projectionist. Excuse me, his I'm name glad is James. I asked. His I'm name glad is James. I asked. Okay, so he's got seven plates. And a pinstripe suit. <laughs> suit and he said this is all i have would you keep it in my office in your office and i said sure that's great so <laughs> i went into the office i put it in a safe place and i wrote down suit seven dwarfs and then at the end of the night he came up and he goes hey by the way do you you have a safe here i said I've, i have a very safe safe here why and he goes i've got a lot of cash in an envelope and i want to put it in somewhere safe i just again i'm in between places and i'd hate to be mugged or fine i said oh yeah sure how much is it and he goes it's thirty three thousand dollars and i said okay <sighs> So I put it in the safe. And at this point, I'm already thinking, we're ahead of the game here. I've got things to tell the detective, right? Ooh. So I called the detective. So before he leaves that night, I'm at the bar. And Marty Feldman's widow, Loretta, was my good friend. And she is this English woman who's very outspoken. And she said, that fucker did it, darling. <laughs> and I said, I, I know, I know. And he was in the bathroom. By the way, he was in the bathroom within earshot. And I said, she was drunk. And I said, I know it. 
So I walk him out the front. He goes, and she goes, hey, he smells of everything murder, darling. He's a murderer. And I said, I, I know. I, I think I know. smells of everything murder. So I called Detective Hamilton. I said, I have a bunch of cash. And he goes, okay, we just give him $30,000. They gave it to him. Yeah. And we're trying to trace because we believe that he hired somebody to kill the owner in order to obtain the, the theater. And, uh, and because he thought he was in the will, which he's not. I said, okay. So what next? And he goes, he's going to come back for the money and we are going to uh, wire the building. And so if he you says... Just, you turn this podcast into some NPR shit It's good shit stuff, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, so what do I do? And he goes, you, he says, you don't provoke anything. You don't do anything. But if you have another moment where it's just the two of you sitting in your office, we'll hear everything. And I said, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is like the jinx. So, this is the jinx. So I show up in the office and at, on the answer machine, because again, no cell phones. This is James. I'm thinking I might be able to come around four o'clock. I need to pick up a few things. Hope that's okay. If you could call me at this number, I'm with a friend. So I called the police and I said, he wants, and they said, okay, so what time do you think he's going to come over? And I said, I'm going to tell him between four and six before the business gets going. I'll be here. So they said, okay. So I call him and I said, hey, James, answer machine. Flanagan calling from Nargo. Anytime between four and six, come pick the stuff up. Hope you're doing great. And um, catch me up with everything. <gasps> yeah, just keeping it very, you know. So, <laughs> five o'clock. It would be great if you hung up and you were like, catch me up with everything. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Too obvious. So, five o'clock, he shows up. Taxi pulls up at the back and I meet my dinner and I look at the window and I go, there he is. This is the fucking murderer, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so, he walks in and the chef lets, lets him upstairs and he comes upstairs and we're sitting there and I says, well, what about that suit? You want to take that suit? And he goes, oh, is it okay if I leave the suit for a little bit? And the plates, I said, what's the deal with the plates? And he goes, they were the one thing that I really cared about when they said you can go back and get something. And he said, these plates were, he says, I believe are very, very valuable. And I said, oh, okay, well, they're, they're safe here. They're fine. And he goes, no, I bought the money. And I said, I bought the money, yeah. And he goes, um, I, want to, I want to take it out of the safe. I said, I, I can get you that right now. You want it right now? And he goes, yeah. So I went in combination the safe, opened the safe, give him his envelope exactly as is. And as I'm handing it to him, I'm like, my hand prints are on this fucking thing, you know. And then, oh, more than this, I'm aware that there's guys on the roof with devices listening to everything I say. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And the chef's sh shouting shit up. There's people coming and going. Yeah. There's stuff going on. And I'm just keeping it all normal. And he's sitting on the couch. And he says, um, yeah, I may not see you for a little bit. So, I mean, that stuff's safe here. And I said, yeah, where, where are you off to? And he goes, I've got some business out of state. And, you know, just that there's certain things I have to do. I said, okay. And he goes, you know what? Sorry, to, is there any way I could put the money back in the safe and come back later on tonight? I just realized I have another commitment. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. What time are you coming back? He says, what time's the show over? And I said, around 11.30. So he says, I'll be back at 11.30. And I said, that's great. And you'll take the money then, you, the suit and the thing? And he goes, not the suit and the thing, but the money. So 11.30. So I, I called the detective. He goes, we heard everything. He's coming back at 11.30. Ah, I went, okay. Good job, Flanny. <laughs> no, he didn't, say, he didn't say anything. And I just said, so, um, you know, and I wasn't even asking, am I, am I doing good? I didn't care. Uh, so, this is like The Departed where you th drop it out the window? Yeah. No wires. <laughs> <laughs> so the show that night was Loudon Wainwright III, this great Rufus Wainwright's dad, Martha, Martha Wainwright's great singer-songwriter. He comes, um, and it was supposed to be a normal show, but Judd decided he wants to film it, Judd Apatow. I have to film that night because <laughs> it's going to be part of this DVD thing. So three cameras show up, and it was more work than I thought it was going to be. So I really just, my mind didn't focus on murder. Yep. <laughs> and I managed to get them all out at 11.30, and as I'm locking the door at the front, he comes out of a cab, James Van Sickle, 
Damn matter, darling. <laughs> and so he comes in and he goes, I am in a bit of a rush. I'm going to keep the cab going and uh, can I get the money? And, and I you said, see sure. in the cab the fare is $30,000. Yeah. I really need that yeah. money. <laughs> but the weird thing is, so I didn't want to lock the door and I thought, okay. So I locked the door and he's inside and then the cab just takes off. Right, and I see, and I see your cab's gone, and he goes, "Oh, I didn't explain to him." Okay, it's fine. I'll get another one. I said, "They're all they're here all the time," so I go to the bar, and I say, "You want a drink of water or something like that?" And he goes, "Oh no," and he he said he didn't drink. So I went upstairs, got the money, came back down. I said, "There you go." And I said, "How are you feeling about everything?" You know, like I mean, where's it at? And he goes, "Well, you know, it's sad that Lawrence is gone, but you know, believe me, he had it coming." <gasps> and I went, "Really, <laughs> really?" I said, uh, in, "In what sense was he?" And he goes, "Well, he was very." There were things that people don't know about him that I know and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. And I said, um, so you're going to be careful with that money. I said, why didn't you get a cashier's check and carry it around? He goes, well, I need cash. It's a payment thing. And, you know, I'm, believe me. And he was very stressed oh out. Very God. stressed oh out. So I sensed that he knew things were closing in on him. But he never said anything like, I did it. Right. He had no whispers, no nothing. I opened the door, let him out, and I locked the door. And as I locked the door, SWAT team. Get him. Boom. No. On the ground. He's on the ground. What? And I'm looking through a, where, a, a one-way mirror, a window where you can see out, but you yeah. can't see in. So I'm standing there, and he's looking at the glass with his head on the pavement, looking at the glass. like Knowing see, you're in Knowing there. I'm in there. Oh, my God. And it was just this weird face. And they pull him up, and then SWAT cars are all over the street. They told me afterwards, they told the cab, get out of here. Really? Oh, baby. Cleared the street. This guy didn't even know the street had been cleared while he was inside. So they blocked off the street. They take him down. And within minutes, everything's gone. I walk out the back. There's nobody. I walk out the front. And then I see a ladder up under the roof. And the SWAT team comes down. And they're, 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 good job. Good job, man. Into the car. Off they go. And I, I'm like, what the fuck? And um, so I, I was like, well, all right. I guess they'll call me if they need anything else. And and, uh, and there's no Google. At the time, I didn't have a computer, so I couldn't Google arrest. And, and so next day, there was nothing on the news. And then suddenly at 6 o'clock the next day, it was all the news. Mm. Murder suspect confirmed. He was the projectionist. Turns out he might have been a serial killer. We have a trace that he, there's three people in Texas that he killed, two people in Florida <gasps> that he killed. Serial. You heard me. Oh, yeah. my God. So then I called Detective Hamilton. And I said, <laughs> I said hey, so... And he goes, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to get to you. It's been really, really crazy. He goes, you're going to get an award for the, from the city for helping. And I, I said, yeah, but by the way, he dropped the $33,000 before he left the building. I have the $33,000. He goes, what do you mean? I said, did you check him for the money? And they were like, we, yeah, he had nothing on him. And I said, yeah, he dropped the envelope before he left. So I don't know if he had this weird... Something's, or something? something's going to happen if I open that door. Yeah. Because he, he had that face on him, like they were closing in on him. So I said, I have the money. Do you want the money and the plates? And, the, and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about, the plate. What are the plates? I said, they're these Disney plates. You could please take them. And he goes, I'm going to send somebody over for the money. Keep the plates in the suit. I said, I don't want the plates in the suit. You keep the plates in the suit. And he goes, listen, they're not murdered. They're not, they're not, we have them. Yeah. It's good. We don't even need the money. Oh. And I says, isn't this the state money that you... And he goes, yeah, 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 you're right. It's, it's just give us the money. We're fine. He says, you can keep $3,000 because we're only accountable for thirty. I said, I'm giving you all the money. Yeah, it's dirty money. Right? So, Wait, he gave you three thousand. Um, no, no. It, it, there was thirty three thousand in an envelope, and he they said had given could... him thirty thousand yeah. dollars. They don't know where the other three grand came from. Oh, okay. So he <laughs> went to them apparently and said, "Listen, to keep going, I need thirty thousand dollars. I mean, that's what I need right now." And he was very adamant about it. And they were like, "Well, we can help you out because you're part of a victims fund." But they knew he was going to take that money and pay the hitman. The hitman. Wow. 
So what had happened, that, that what had happened, the actual thing happened was he was in the projection booth. He paid a guy from the Dominican Republic who he met downtown L.A. and his partner. The partner never showed up. This guy shows up at the front, shoots Lawrence in the head, shoots the lady behind the teller. She survived, shoots her, runs through the cinema as a movie's going on, shooting. People are freaking out. He runs through the exit and the organist kept playing. Like the Titanic. Never apologize. Ah! Right? Shoot to, shoot to two weeks later, I'm downtown, and some, somebody, Feinstein, I think his name was, photo op for the LA Times of me, and I had a turtleneck on, like Steve McQueen. I was like, standing there like, what am I doing? And they're like, well, you helped out with this, so we're going to give you an award. So they give me an award with my name spelled wrong. <laughs> Big award. And I stood there with this guy, and I said, I don't, I don't really know what this is. We're just wrapping up the story. You, you helped out and stuff. I said, okay, that's great. And then so I... Detective Hamilton was in the photograph too. Me, him, and this congressman, the local... I, I, I have to look up his name. I wrote it down. But anyway, the thing was, <laughs> I said to Hamilton, so what now? And he goes, oh, he's off to like San Quentin for life. He, they got him on three other things, four other things or something like that. And I was wow. like, okay. And so maybe about three weeks later, wasn't thinking about it all, just doing the whatever this night thing is at Largo tonight. And I come in and I'm listening through the answer machine and there was always tons of messages. You know, like, hey, we have a reservation, it's four, but it's probably going to be three. Next one is like, hey, it's Mitch Hedberg, what are you doing, man? When can I play again? Click, no information to contact me. <laughs> and then the next one was like, okay, you can talk now. Hey, this is James Van Sickle, I'm calling from prison for Mr. Flanagan. I have a few things to talk to you about. Click, they cut him <gasps> off. And that was the last, that was, he was allowed to call to call me. Oh, my. I don't know if he's looking for the plates. <laughs> But guess what? Guess what? So the bartender at the time had a wedding coming up a week later, and the suit fitted him perfectly. And he wore the suit and kept the suit. Get out of here. And I still have the plates. You do? Rare Disney plates. Anyone? (laughs) Anyone? It's like they go to Lady V's, which we'll auction them off for Lady V's charity. Yeah, Uh, there you go. Oh, there you go. (laughs) When that charity is called Real Girl. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's Women uh, Empowerment for Girls. Right. That is. Oh, my God. That is so so, crazy. But it's funny. Fine dining of of storytelling. Wow. And then then years later, the, the, um, the place came up for sale, and they were like, would you want to buy it? Huh. And I was like, no, I wouldn't want to buy that silent film place. It's a, yeah. And then many years later, Doug Benson asked me to, to do Doug Loves Movies. Mm-hmm. And he did it there. Or he yeah. still does do it yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Wayne I, has his festival there. Right. And so Zach went, and it was the first time or Zach was doing it. And so I went. I said I didn't want to do it. No, he didn't ask me to do it. What am I thinking? He asked me to come to it. Mm. And uh, I went with Zach, Zach Galifianakis, and the two of us went. And we were sitting in a couch in front of the screen. And I realized I'd never been there since the last time I saw, or before the murder. And this, the couch that I was sitting was exactly where the organist was. <gasps> wow. And I was just sitting there going, nobody here knows anything. And yet this really happened. You feel like how vampires feel. Like I when you're in, a, you're in a bank and you're like, this used to be where the massacre happened. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like no but isn't, isn't that crazy? I mean, that's another thing that happens in L.A. And it's just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the thing that's the two things that are most alarming about that story are the plates. I feel like they should have taken that for evidence yeah. that it was a serial killer. And then he let you keep some of the that. money. He was like, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. No, and He wasn't so blasé about it, but he was, he, he was so... Meth- the, 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 he was great, Detective Hamill. 
he was so mathematical about everything. It was like, that's not ours, so we're not, we're not going to take it. You keep it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but on the overall scheme of thing, it's yours. Yeah. Right. But the plates. And the fact that the, the organist kept playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's troubling. So they actually cr- said that in the newspaper thing about like it was uh, a murderer ran through, shooting in the air, having shot two people outside, and people was ducked, <laughs> and the organ player kept playing. <laughs> Maybe it was just like, the footnotes. Yeah. He was so old. He was so old and so deaf. That he um, nothing happened. Oh he was just thinking God. of the music, the screen, and he was faced the screen. So this was all happening behind him, and he yeah. probably just thought it was brave, funny. often confused with deaf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is that's a flanny story. That <laughs> is a flanny. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> well, cross out murder. So there you go. That's a long show. Right? That's such a good one. That's a great one. Thank you, Flandovers. Yeah. We're supposed to talk. Well, let's talk about God at, at this point. Then we'll wrap up with something later. You kind of talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were Catholic because you're not British, right? <laughs> and uh, where are you at now? I mean, you're a lovely man. I you um, seem to be on the on the side of virtue. Mm-hmm. I don't mean ethics necessarily. Yeah. Although you're ethical, I just mean like you seem like you like uh, love and kindness yes, and, and light. And, and just because it happened so recently with the Pope's visit, you know, I saw that man and I went. That's something to aspire to be. Mm. But I am so glad that I don't have the shackles that he has. Because he's mm-hmm. a guy that believes that if you're gay, or nobody should get in the way of your dedication to your... your mm-hmm. co- and my, my feeling is everyone should be free and protected to believe whatever they believe. And in the mm-hmm. same sense, that person shouldn't be in any way judgmental not amount, uh, with other people. What they yeah. and, shouldn't, you know, and so my feeling is... Um, it, my own beliefs are I don't believe there's a God I don't believe there's an afterworld I believe this is it mm-hmm. absolutely and I've had no proof otherwise and I, you know I studied the Bible I, I, you know and I've looked at all the other different religions and stuff and I I did go through a phase of wishing that that like you know maybe if I had the Scientology vibe where it's just like ha ha ha, ha mm. there's a better we're gonna we're get, or Mormon men thinking they're gonna get a planet whatever it is you know yeah. I've read all these things and I'm just kind of I have the solace of knowing that this is the this is Every day that I have is what we have. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I believe that when we die, that our spirit survives with our friends and our families mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But that's it. I don't believe anything. Not in a mystical survival, but in no. a DNA survival. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think once the body goes, it goes. Mm-hmm. And so what is, what, is, uh, what is this? What's going on here? A big cosmic mistake? And I, that's, no, that no, no, like no, a- not at all. I mean, I really do believe that, like, the Earth was created by this confusion of things from other planets, like whether it was a asteroid that, you know, cracked some DNA thing or whatever the hell it is. Sure. You know? um, and I just believe that it's ongoing. And I also believe that it's constantly, I don't live by this every day, but it's constantly a threat of something else destroying it. Mm. That we will be the dinosaurs and there'll be nobody to, t- to tell our story. There's, mm. The way we're doing treating the Earth right now is just... Yeah, right. we're helping it out, you know. Yeah. Yikes! <laughs> Let's have more kids, people. <laughs> so, but that's so. I do. I, I'm very non-religious, but I absolutely support everybody that that is, even if it's silly. Like even, you know, and a lot of Catholicism that I was brought. And this is my earliest memory was being in the church that was blown up and the crucifix went, the cross went through our house. Before that, when I was five, I remember sitting in a pew with my my mother my elder sister and my dad and my dad was always on the aisle you know and we're sitting there and the priest was talking about taking the bone of Adam and making Eve Mm. Mm. and at five I just kind of looked at my mum and she gave me the Uh, don't worry about it look which is a kind of a 
shake of the head and a bit, half a wink to go, don't think about this too much. Mm. Wow. And, and then she explained to me, I said, well, why, after that, I said, why are we going to this thing? She goes, it's more to do with the neighbors. We just don't want, it's fine. And at a certain point, we won't do this. And you I know, said, it's funny, wow. when you push a lot of people in my neighborhood, like the neighborhood I grew mm. up in, the older people, You'll if you put peel down enough layers, you'll get like an and you know these are Irish people that right. know it's all just for fun. They'll be like you're better with it than without it. You don't need right. to believe it. It's like a community it's like a thing. Cultural it's a thing. cultural thing. Yeah. But also yeah. add to the fact that like the political and religious situation in Belfast at the time was it mm. was us against them. And if you're not really one of us, who the hell are you? Right, mm. right. So ah, you didn't like want to loyalty. step out of line. You just be like, let's just just show up to this fucking thing and see what happens. You know? Right, right, right. Wow. Simpler that way for mm-hmm. sure. So there was never really a time then that you like believed it and then you lost your faith. Never believed it. That's very Who else? That was Berbiglia, too. He told a story about being, like, I don't know if it was, like, seven or something in Catholic school and just being, like, and I decided this isn't real. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, but, I mean, the funny thing is that um, who was it recently? Steve Colbert on a show. I don't know if you saw it, but he was talking to um, uh, the Archbishop of Miami, maybe, and it was after the Cuban visit of the Pope, and he was kind of, like, shepherding <laughs> the Pope around Cuba. Yeah. And he said to him, you know, I and he said, I think he said to him, or he might, one of his guests, Colbert said, I'm a Catholic, but I don't believe a lot of that stuff. Like, you know, the the angels and the guardians mm. and all that. There's certain things I don't believe, but I am a Catholic. And I'm, I kind of feel like, you know, there's American Catholics. Which, by the way, you know, Polish and Italian and Catholic, Irish Catholics are Catholic Catholic. American mm-hmm. Catholics are as liberal a Catholic as you can get. Mm-hmm. Right. But I grew up at a time when homosexuality was completely illegal and so when people asked where the gay community of ireland was it was in london Mm. you had to leave the country Mm. sex before marriage was complete taboo there was never pornography there was no condoms Mm. you know young people were having anal sex to you know because they were like well we figured that out i mean it was the loophole one in the bum no harm done yeah (laughs) boom be doom so but so anyway that it was it's unbelievable now like we think now about like all the states are or pro, or, or, or you can get married in any state in, in America as a gay couple. Right. When I grew up, it was no sex before marriage, masturbation's a sin, you know, all these things. And my, and I think it was my mum, particularly, and my dad, both said, "Listen, you're your own man. Mm. You'll figure it all out. Nobody will tell you what it is. Mm. Don't murder people. Try and treat people nice and see how it goes. And if you know someone that murdered somebody, wow. call Hamilton." <laughs> 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 what a lovely, what a lovely finale! Yeah. Well, well, we. I love your God answer. So, you're such a beautiful person, uh, and we always end with a, a good laugh story, like a time that you laughed, is a nice lighter way because sometimes the God stuff gets heavy. Um, Marty Feldman's widow, who was one of my best friends, and by the way. She died four years ago, and I live in her house, which was Marty Feldman's house. And Marty died 30 years ago, and we found um, – uh, she told me before she died. So he, I met her to the day 10 years that Marty had died. Mm. It was right before Christmas, and she was very emotional, and, and I got to hang out with her. And, and then became John Bryan, and a few of us were very good friends with her. And she died a few years ago of cancer. She knew that her husband, even though he was only 48, was working on an autobiography, and it was in her attic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would always joke about, come on, let's find out about the affairs and stuff. And she never wanted to know anything about it. But she said to me, listen, after I die, all is belonging. She told me what to do with this, that, and the other, you know. And, um, I mean, he had the Frankenstein outfit, young Frankenstein up in the attic. Mm. He had his, wow. every script that he had ever written. He was a very prolific man in his time. Mm. And he was 
as successful as Ricky Gervais in terms of The Office and everything else. He had his own TV show. He was, you know, all this stuff in England before Young Frankenstein. So uh, she said, after he dies, read this thing. I don't want to know anything about it, but read it. And if it's any good, put it out on the internet. Let, let people have it because he has enough of a fan base. He didn't even have a website of stuff. You know, he'd been dead th- 30 years at this point. So she died. And I went up into the attic and I looked at all the stuff. There was an overwhelming amount of stuff, like, you know, letters from Gene Wilder to her after he died. And this really beautiful stuff. And I went through I, it and I sat there and it was like, wow. And then I saw this box and it said EYE with a small, the first E was small, EYE Marty. And I went, oh, this is it. This is autobiography. And how funny, I, because he had the dodgy eye. Mm. So, um, made of wood. And uh, <laughs> I read the scr- this manuscript and he had notes of like photographs of me and Spike Milligan photograph of me Peter Sellers photograph of me and Loretta when we first met first of you know and all Mm. these things notes on it and so I it had been there for 30 years maybe more and so I was carefully reading this thing and it was his life story and it was fantastic and Mm. so I was like well that's great and then there was the business of dealing with all the stuff and Eric Idle walked into Largo and I'd known him for a while but he walked into Largo and I said you're never going to believe I've it's the most inspiring book. He goes, I have to read it. He was my mentor. He was my friend. They started around the same time. He was, you know, he got Monty Python, was integral for getting a lot of them together. So I give the book to him. And so he read it and, and said, this has to be published as is. And mm-hmm. so I put it together with, um, did a forward explaining how I found the book, my relationship to Loretta. And it's coming out November 5th, and all the proceeds are going to my kids' ch- uh, children's tumor foundation. Oh, wow. And wow. Eric Idle wrote the most beautiful forward for it, and it's coming out. So, but the, it's, it's a kind of a... She didn't want to read it because she didn't want to relive or know anything, but it's, it's an ode to her. So mm. it's so... There's life. Like, if she had read this, it would have been this, like, God, did he love me. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's so inspiring. He doesn't focus on any negative stuff. He's like, hey, there's reason to... Um, he there's great bits in it like Mel Brooks tells him look you're here Young Frankenstein's going to make you a huge star in America the advice I give you is there's a lot of assholes here but there's a lot of great people only work with the great people mm. your life will be easier and so his next movie was with Gene Wilder his one after that was with Mel his one after that was with Richard you know he made his own movie called In God We Trust where he cast Andy Kaufman in his first role as an evangelical leader and Richard Pryor as God Mm. You know, it's fantastic. Mm. And so he died not long after that. But anyway. You white fucking bitch. But, yeah, but, but, Get so, in yeah. the pearly gates. <laughs> so, so, his, so ending on a funny bit was his wife was one of the funniest people. Like, really funny. And it's rumored that her and her best friend, Ann Sellers, who's Peter Sellers' wife, who, widow, mm. first wife, I, they're both my friends. She's dead now, but Ann's still around. And uh, Absolutely Fabulous was based on them. Mm. Uh, so, uh, what do you call her, Jennifer Saunders? Is that her name? I think so. That Something sounds right. close to that. Yeah. She saw them at the Gaucho Club in England, and they were just complaining. There was bombs going off at Harrods, darling, the IRA. Mm. And they were like, it's ghastly. One must go shopping, and there's these bombs. It's so, and like, and uh. Jennifer Saunders overheard stuff like that and was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write. So she got, you know. So wow. she's quite famous. Loretta's famous. And I was like, but I invited her to see a show at Largo. And it was a band called the Wild Colonials, and they had a sax player, and it was really good. And I said, they do jazzy stuff, and I know you love jazz, but where do you hear the sax player? He's really good. And so she was sitting in the back, and she was very judgmental. And she was good friends with Greg Proops, like a lot of comedians. She, they all knew her. Hey, kittens. Yes. And so she, <laughs> she's the one that said, he's a murderer. He has murder all over him. Uh, so she had a very deep voice. And when people would call her house and say, Mr. Feldman, because she had a deep voice. 
Uh, no. He's gone over, darling. And click and hang up the phone. He's oh, gone over. That's a, you know. Gone over. Yeah. And uh, so he uh, or f- he fell off the perch. Perch. Yeah. <laughs> These are they're hers. So anyway, she's sitting in the back of the room, and the, the music's gone, and it dawns on me that they're about to do this beautiful Billie Holiday song, "Don't Explain." And she loves that song. Mm. And Marty loved that song. And this it's a very sad song, but they love this song. So the girl, Angela, starts singing. She's a beautiful voice. And hush now, don't explain, blah, 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 blah. You're mine, I'm yours, don't explain. And then the sax solo comes. And the sax player leans up, and he's a tenor sax player. And he starts to play this Lester Young, which is a very... Like very breathy, mm-hmm. slow... And he's getting to, and people, the place is packed, and people are so into it. And from the back of the room, she goes, Oh, blow, you fucker, blow! <laughs> <laughs> Best heckle ever. <laughs> Loud enough for him to hear? Louder than everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh blow, you fucker, blow! <laughs> And John Bryan was there. We still laugh about it. It was just like, and the guy stopped everyone silence for a second Uh, and then laughter. And it just, it stopped the song. It was like, Oh my God, that's so good. And that song is so like haunting. Oh my God. It's so serious. Yeah. And oh, that's perfect. As you know, Val, I like uh, jazz at a low volume, so that sounds That's like my true. kind of show. And you also like me- like comedy within live music, like you like you, you know like the oh, drummer I love, not knowing what's yeah, going on. Yeah, a bit on that and... Val and I do, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> is a drummer who didn't know something like right? I, it's not going to work because it's a visual right, right, gag. Right. But I'm a drummer. I think there's something really funny. So right now, for those listening, I'm air drumming, and there's something really funny where I'm trying to talk to the bass player, where I'm like. <laughs> Yeah. Like I just yeah. love the yes. idea. You have to keep the beat going. Right. But you're like, I thought we were closing with this. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I urgency. love it. I love <laughs> recording booth humor and uh, drummer humor. Yeah. Uh, well, Flandovers, this was lovely. Val has to get back to her wonderful we do. job at we're Real Girl. Real Girl. Yeah. <laughs> and obvi- I think people are going to be like, oh, uh, we didn't learn much about Valerie, but we'll do it again. Yeah. No, I thought. Have you done? Have fling. you done them before? No, this was special for you. This was for you. Oh, man. Yeah. I thought that was part of. It I mean, was just that I couldn't stand missing a, yes. a dish sesh yeah, yeah. with Flanny. Well, I hope I hope the uh, the murder thing is kind of like you know I wanted oh to bring God. something that that could, people could listen to and go. You know that okay, that happened well. Uh, yeah. no, and I'm, I, I can't wait for your book of stories. And we could do this every day for the rest of time, uh, yeah. all time. But I'm glad we did this time. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for sharing yeah. this. Thanks for piece. having me. Thank you. And uh, hi to the wee man in Phoenix. <laughs> God love you. With the cane. Oh no. Um, but we'll we'll do more Val another time. Cause yeah. We yeah. both love you so very Just, much. Just uh, November 16th, come and see <laughs> women's women arm wrestling for. The Empowerment of Girls at the, at the Bootleg Theater. Theater. Is thank there you, a website for the... Uh, yeah, thank you, Flanny. Uh, yeah, go to... If you just search Real Girl Pro- Empowerment Programs, it'll be aneabogue.com. And, uh, or you can email me at Valerie at realgirlprograms.com. You're going to get a lot of email about this show now. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm, it'll give me work how, to do. How, when does this come out? Uh, I don't know. Well, we'll put it out before this event. That's so Pete will have a show in December at Largo. Yeah, uh, there we go. Almost perfect. New York, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's going to be great. That's I can't exciting. wait. Um, that, I guess that's it. Yeah. No, I, I love you both. Would you say you uh, keep it crispy? It's how we end. For God's sake, keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I'm so crispy. I'm so crispy.
Now leaving Nerdist.com.